I went ahead and I applied it and it got rid of it. And in a matter of months, you could never tell that growth had ever been there. That is what started me because I realized, oh, oh my God, it's like this, this is, you know, this is an amazing thing. And, and this is going to, this, this approach to curing cancer is going to eliminate chemo and radiation and everything else. Now, I was very naive about politics. I was very naive about the fact that medicine has absolutely nothing to do with curing anybody of anything. That's its common narrative. That's the narrative they want to put forth before the public. But modern medicine has absolutely nothing to do with curing you of anything. It's all about making money. And the thing is, is that you can't have a system of approaching healthcare that's primarily about money and have it also about curing people. And why is that? Well, because the most effective things for curing disease just happen to be cheap and inexpensive. And that doesn't work if your model for healthcare is all about making money. So it's absolutely imperative that your doctor hurt you. It's absolutely imperative that the oncologist kill you. And I understand people think are going to hear this, but you know, it's counterintuitive. But I cover this in, eno in, in absolute uh, enormous detail in uh, in the joys of psychopathocracy. That you know that, that it's not possible for modern medicine to remotely represent what it claims to represent. It's, it's absolutely possible. And I create a whole system of social analysis for helping people. Understand this previous book I wrote. So uh, I went ahead. They, they went ahead and. You know, I was very uh, out there on the Internet talking about how corrupt the system is. Of course, that can get you into trouble, and it did. They came in. They destroyed my lab, uh, destroyed a half a million dollars in inventory. They threw me in prison, and that started a concatenation of events such that I would be struggling uh, for the next eight years, both, you know, in and out of prison, in and out of probation, all of this before I was finally freed of the system in 2011. But it was eight years of hell. Uh, they, they kid I was here in Ecuador. They kidnapped me in 2009. It was an international incident. I'm like the Julian Assange case you just never heard about before. Okay, they kidnapped me, brought me back to the U.S. When I finally got back here in 2011, the Ecuadorian government condemned what the U.S. had done uh, as illegal, both in violation of Ecuadorian law as well as international law. And uh, they had me in newspapers as one of the ten most wanted criminals. They had my picture. In Parade Magazine, in February of 2000, um, 2009, uh, the 10 most wanted criminals had my picture next in there with Osama bin Laden. I mean, this is how nutso this my case gets. Absolutely nutso. I had my case covered by Alex Jones, Mike Adams, uh, Mel Febregas, all kinds of people in the alternative media. Um, that did. That it was kind of like, you know, it was like. Because it just showed how absurd these people are and how they have no respect for their own laws and how clearly the criminal justice system uh, has no respect for facts, no respect even for their own laws. Uh, there is no moral or ethical uh, foundation for anything that goes on in the legal system in the U.S. and in most Western countries, for that matter. And so uh, when I got back here in 2008, I continued to do what I did, but... Um, you know, I've been, I continue to be vocal. You know, I don't know what comes next. Maybe they're just going to kidnap me and drop me from an airplane at 40,000 feet. I'm not real sure yet. Oh, God. But I believe, I believe, I believe that 
when you get to the point, you know, this is the problem. They just don't realize that I'm the quintessential American. I'm just basically one of your give me liberty or give me death kind of a guys. You know, I'm just I'm not going to play their bullshit game, which is this this unbelievably ridiculous world they've created. That is the, the anthropogenic foundation of the Holocene extinction event. We are in an extinction event. You got to fast. You got to you got to you got to go into rewind 252 million years to find something that's happened on Earth that's as dramatic as what's happening right now. And in this case, happens talking about the you know the, the Permian uh, uh, event of 252 million years ago uh, that wiped out most life on Earth, and it took 10 million years for the Earth to regenerate itself. So we're headed there. We're going in that direction. That's where we're headed. People don't understand what the word unsustainable means. I guess they, most people don't use a dictionary anymore. Unsustainable means unsustainable. And this is where we're headed. And this is why you have, uh, this is why eschatology is an area of interest. That's why people should be talking about end of days. Because of the fact we have created an end of days situation that uh, is not going to change in the absence of some enormous uh, change in direction. Um, so anyways, again, once again, those are the broad brushstrokes. I could get into the minute of it in, in, any, in any direction that uh, any of innumerable uh, corollaries that relate to my, my basic theme, but, but, but that's basically it. I mean, our, our goose is cooked. So we have to hope that, you know, as I, as I, again, as I say in my last book, that there's something to this very basic principle of the Chinese I Ching, that when things reach an extreme, everything reverts to its opposite. And we have reached an extreme. We've reached an extreme in terms of uh, a world guided by negaprosity. I shorten that word in my book to negaprosity, where there, we take from the earth, we take from our surroundings, and in an absence of love, we return nothing in return. We don't appreciate life. We don't appreciate how delicate and fragile it is. We take everything for granted. And what you have because of that is a world that's in complete decrescence. And, um, and that's where we're at. And that's what I talk about. I think an event's coming. I really do. I think I was shown in my vision, in all my vision quests, and I talked to shamans deep in the Amazon. I, I've spent a lot of time in the Amazon jungle. And I can tell you that there's a kind of a homogenous narrative that's being picked up by people who use who use entheogenics, not just ayahuasca, who are sensing that we are headed to something where there is this kind of massive intervention event. Hmm. Um, and the the commonality, the common thread that runs through that, there's, there's variations on that theme. Not everyone who does vision quests is going to, not everyone who does vision quests is going to pick up the same thing. But there's enough homogeneity in what people are perceiving that I, I think that this is something that is headed our way. Um, and of course you're going to have naysayers say, well, that's just an epiphenomenon of using hallucinogenics in the first place. But, uh, you know, <laughs> when I, I have done vision quests, and, been on other planes and other planets that are a lot more real than this one, you know. And so people who think, well, the reason you would have these ideas and these thoughts are because you're using hallucinogenics. And I can tell you that if if you if you're advanced in the use of entheogenic materials, um, the the part that's most illusionary is having to come back here. This is the most mismanaged planet in the universe. 
It really is. This is the most mismanaged planet anywhere um, by any advanced life form. I mean, it's completely mismanaged, and it's headed for a train wreck. And uh, and my journey centered around what it is going to mean to have uh, a, a return, a revert to the opposite of the direction that we're headed now, which is guided by this kind of Babylonian death cult, and the variation of this kind of Luciferian Babylonian death cult that's been guiding human affairs for the last 4,000 plus years. So I'm hopeful. I, I, I am. I'm hopeful. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I, I think our situation is dire, but I think something better is coming, something a real kind of jumping for joy moment. And um, that experience I had of those, those series of ayahuasca journeys that began in November 2011 and ran into the summer of 2012, uh, I have every reason to believe that um, the events that I was told would happen will actually, will actually come to pass. When you were... When your lab was ransacked, uh, was this the military doing this? Was this uh, uh, secret agents? Who, who exactly was doing this? Well, in 2003, it was the Food and Drug Administration. And then in 2009, I mean, you know, pick your alphabet agency. I mean, it was a combination of the Food and Drug Administration, U.S. Marshal Service, uh, U.S. State Department. You know, they were all in on it. I mean, basically... Um, both Condoleezza, you know, this isn't political, both Condoleezza Rice, who was Secretary of State prior to 2009, and Hillary Clinton, both signed directives to have me extraordinarily renditioned, which actually did occur on December 2nd, 2009. Um, literally, I was in the middle of an extradition hearing, and I was winning my extradition hearing. The U.S. government didn't like it. Of course, they don't, they, the U.S. government doesn't like the law. If it doesn't work in their favor, they don't they don't like the law. They, they create hundreds of thousands of laws, everything under the sun. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, Three Felonies a Day. The average American citizen commits three felonies a day that can land you in federal prison. Most people don't believe that, but it's only because people don't realize just how many laws are in the books that that regulate every manner and form of human behavior imaginable. So, yeah, three felonies a day. So, um so the second time, it was actually a combination of different agencies, and they had me kidnapped, and they had me put on the Interpol red list as one of the most dangerous criminals in the world. This is all in Metatopia. I document all of this. The first time people hear this, they think, can you possibly make this up? No, I'm not making it up. This actually happened. And uh, I was put in Trade Magazine, which, which is an insert that goes into newspapers all across America every Sunday, is one of the most dangerous criminals in the world. And they put in there that I was a drug dealer, that I was duping consumers. When, I get, when they finally kidnapped me and brought me back to the States, they dropped all the charges because they were, they were bogus and nailed me with something that was basically a, a, a latent a, a probation charge, probation violation charge. I spent the next 21 months in prison. So I was in prison basically from uh, uh, December 2009 until I got out in September of 2011 and I came back to Ecuador. And I've been here ever since. I haven't left. Uh, I, I did actually attempt to go to the uh, Anarchapulco. I was invited by Jeff Berwick to go to the Anarchapulco. And, um, and I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, in prison again. I would, they threw me into a detention center and refused to let me into Mexico. 
and they immediately flew me back to Ecuador. So, so I, I, I still deal with this indignity. You know, I still have to deal with it. This happened on this happened on February 12th. You know, it was my wife's 60th birthday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put me in a detention center and then put, put me on the next plane back to Ecuador. I said you can't. You're not allowed in Mexico. Narco, you know, the, the narco terrorist state of the world doesn't want me in their country. Go figure. <laughs> it's it's kind of uh, interesting that Hillary Clinton was involved in some way. It, it, she seems like a really bad one. Well, she is. I, I don't like to get into. I don't want to get too far into politics. So I'm certainly not on the Trump train. But um, I think between the two, I, I, I mean, I'm I'm of the. She's a horrible person. I mean, there. So many of the people, most of my family voted for Bernie. Um, the, yeah, she's a horrible person. She really, in, in, you know, she's she's totally into all that Saul Alinsky stuff. I mean, she, she's a radical. She, she, but she's, her, you know, she is part of the Luciferian agenda, and I get into that in my book as well. You know, and, and she's not the only one. You've got people of both part, all, all all across the political spectrum that that have this belief in. Uh, in the power of the dark force, I hate to use that term broadly because it has so many implications. But yeah, there are those who believe that that who have a really fundamental belief in all things Luciferian, and they have their reasons for it. And I make the argument in my last book that that's another thing that's got us into this because uh, in this kind of tug of war between the forces of unconditional love and reciprocity on one end and negative reciprocity in the other, the idea that I live in this world to take advantage of everybody around me. I am shameless in my exploitation of my fellow man. I am shameless in my exploitation of nature. And, and this is this is what, and, and I'll use everything at my disposal to get ahead and to to crush my competitors, etc. This kind of ethos is the reason the planet is in the situation it's in. I don't like the word um, anthropogenic because it makes it implies that all the rest of us are responsible for this when it's really just a thin layer of people in the elite at the top who have guided us in this direction. I can give you countless examples. I went. I was in 2003. I went to Russia. I wanted to see this um, Estonian scientist, and so if you're in St. Petersburg, Russia, it's a five-hour drive to get to Narva, which is right across the river. It's right. It's when you pass from Russia into Estonia. So it's just funny to see the scientist who had the most one of the most incredible inventions I've ever seen. This guy invented a plastic that's citric based and it de decomposes after a couple of years. The world is dying because of plastics. I mean, there's over 50 trillion pieces of plastic garbage floating around in the oceans. We've got more plastic garbage in the oceans than we do phytoplankton, which is the largest source of biomass on the planet. How perverted is that? Well, it's un the truth is it's unbelievably perverted. So anyways... I'm sitting there talking to him, and he's. This is in July of 2003, and he's telling me this story how Dupont and Dow and these other major American chemical companies have done everything in their power to subvert this guy, and he he was willing to like give access to his patent for like nothing. It's like they want to destroy the planet. People that are in charge, the people who really are in charge, the real. That I guess the term they use now is deep state. The real people at the, in the highest level of the deep state really do want to destroy it all. This is, you know, you know, it's it's almost as if there's almost eight billion of us humans, and we're on this airplane, 
and there's they've locked the cabin, and the pilot and co-pilot are kamikaze pilots. They're gonna they're gonna kill themselves and all the rest of us. And they're into this. It's really amazing. Really, you know, and really understand what guides these people. It's really amazing. You know, the, the serving that for the short term serving the dark force, they can destroy everything on the planet, create these systems, these constructs, basically an open declaration of war against carbon-based life forms, and that's the way you actually manage a planet. Yeah, yeah, that that makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. And this is the situation we're in. And, you know, it's, it's taken me a lifetime of study to really get an appreciation. I don't know if even that's the right word. To, to get a grasp of where we're at and where we're going if there is, if there is the absence of some kind of outside intervention. And it's very disturbing to hear this happen because there really should be a whole entire legal process to extradite somebody. You can't just go and grab them. That that's just unbelievably disturbing oh, at every level. It, it, it's worse than that. I was in an American Airlines plane. They they had just abducted me. Uh, I was able. One of the police officers felt sorry for what was happening. I actually had a police officer handing me a phone. He probably risked this. Officer probably risked his job today. I made the call. The judge in my case, who was over, who was overseeing my extradition hearing, went because he because the the chambers weren't very far from the airport. It's all right there in Guayaquil. Went to the airport tower in Guayaquil, Ecuador. Told the pilot, the American Airlines pilot, you are to stand down now. You are illegally abducting someone who's in the middle of an extradition hearing. This is illegal under both Ecuadorian international law. Basically, basically, on Ecuadorian territory, the American Airlines pilot told the Ecuadorian judge, in so many words, go F yourself. I'm take, I'm on the tarmac. I'm taking off. Bye. That actually happened. And this is all, you know, I have all of this documented. This is the reason when I came back, the Ecuadorian government treated me like Julian Assange, like they do Julian Assange. And um, completely expunged all the export uh, deportation data off my record, allowed me to stay and condemned what the U.S. government did because they do this stuff all the time. They have, there's there's these people have no respect for any facts. They just do whatever they want. The law has no meaning. Facts have no meaning. Justice has no meaning. Ethics has no meaning. Morals have no meaning. We do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is how it works at the very highest levels. And they did this simply because I'm vocal about things they don't want to have talked about. You know, they always talk about the First Amendment. There's no First Amendment in the United States. So you can talk about things that that are, are, are inconsequential. But if you really talk about the important issues, and not even that you're really an activist or a revolutionary, but just on the level of intellectual discourse, you talk about things that they don't like. You become this kind of enemy of the state. It's really quite extraordinary. And you know, I think back on um, I think back on Alec Tocqueville when he wrote Democracy in America in 1832. Uh, I remember one of the things that he talked about is he said that even at that time he said, "I see in the American culture a kind of hidden, unspoken censorship." that we did not experience in Europe even during the height of the Spanish Inquisition. 
He was saying even then in the 1830s that the, the subtle forms of censorship in the U.S. were worse than what emanated from Rome during the Spanish Inquisition. And I can tell you that it's a lot worse today in the U.S. than it was in 1832. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, um, you know, even my wife's family, they won't even talk, they won't talk on, on our side of the, they won't even talk to us because in their mind, the U.S. government can never do any wrong. If they accuse you of something, you must be guilty. I mean, you, you know, you've got all these automatons that don't question authority. They don't realize that the interests of the government and the interests of ordinary people do not coincide. They're not the same. They do just what they have to try to do to promote the idea that there's legitimacy in government. So somehow the government's legitimate. This is covered extensively in Professor Joseph A. Tainter's work, The Collapse of Complex Societies. Government's chief role is to try to get people to believe that government's necessary. It isn't. The government needs people. People don't need government. This is the very crooks and the very foundation of anarchical thinking. And it's true. It's true. If, you know, and especially like where I am, where you go into the Amazon, you see these tribes so far into the backwoods. There's no government. There's no sign of government anywhere. Are those people unhappy? No. Are those people in any way dysfunctional? No. Do those people do just fine? Do they live basically happy lives? Yes. Much happier than urbanites that live in the West. How could that be? Well, it could be because get rid of government and people start being happy. <laughs> And this oh this God. has also happened to uh, people looking into other things, such as the guy who made the lawnmower pretty much run off of water, or some of these other free energy types, or even Planet X researchers. They've they've been uh, harassed and thrown in jail and and possibly even killed. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's we have this kind of proliferation of this kind of trend. You know, I, I did a, I did, I wrote an essay in 2015 about these 30 plus doctors, these 30 plus medical doctors. Hey everybody, I'm back. It's me. It's the DAN, the all American man broadcasting to you from the shimmering Emerald city. I'm sitting here in a state of shock. <sighs> All of you live listeners, I do apologize to you. All you folks out there that follow End of Days Radio on social media, I apologize to you. I'm fucking pissed. I'm pissed because this keeps happening. It keeps happening. And at this point, it's beyond what I could attribute to coincidence. I was still holding on to that little shred of doubt in my mind that... It's all a coincidence. It just happened. These things happen. There are technical issues. There are roadblocks. There are things that happen. No, this is too much. What we were talking about, who this person is that we were just talking to, what has already happened to him, it is beyond the possibility of coincidence. And this isn't hard for them to do, really. It's not. I, there's a certain amount of people out there that are what do you call them, political dissidents, and these people are watched. And I don't know if I'm one of them. I have no idea, but I've been pushing it more and more. I've been bringing on people that are victims of gang stalking. I've been bringing on people that are bucking the system, people that want to get rid of the government, people that are already being harassed by entities and parties out there. And of course, I've never wanted to bring this on myself. Of course, it's something that I feared. I'm human. 
I do have normal human thoughts and emotions. Uh, all of you out there that think I'm such a big rebel badass, it's true, I am, I am. But I'm still human, and I have my own doubts and my own fears, and for a long time I've wondered when. When is it going to get to the point where they actually come after me or come after this show? And I figured it'd start out this way. I figured it'd start out as little tremors, little warnings, little hints that you better shut the hell up. That you better shut the fuck up, Daniel. Quit doing this show where you are exposing the system. Quit connecting the dots. Quit pushing it further than the disinfo agents from the people that try to distract you or swerve your perspective that try to keep you from grabbing onto that actual real little bit of truth and pulling on it and finding a pathway to the real actual truth. They want to shut that down. They want to overload you with disinformation. They want to compound you with misdirection, mind control, brainwashing. They don't want you to hear this stuff. They don't want you hearing about alternative cures that could put their huge, profitable pharmaceutical industry in trouble. They don't want that. They want us to keep using their toxic, poisonous, petroleum-based medicines. They want you to keep having to pay $60 for a little bottle of pills. They don't want you to find natural cures that will prolong your lifespan and empower you. They just want that stuff for themselves. That's why they've hoarded the knowledge. And boy, I'm real disappointed that we couldn't get more into this because I really wanted to hear more about this whole Luciferian conspiracy that's going on. Oh, and by the way, it looks like this show is pretty much fucked thanks to Big Brother slash The Powers That Be slash The Evils That Be. Thanks to them. We're fucked, right? So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to go ahead and open up the show and just do it like our wrap-up after interview period. So if you'd like to call in, the number is 209-348-9810 or just add Ninja Shoe 777 on Skype. Once again, that call number is 209-348-9810. Call in if you'd like to comment on what's going on. If you'd just like to call in and let me know that there's actually anybody listening out there, that I'm not being shut down completely, that you can still hear me. I mean, it gets a little weird. Sometimes I wonder, have I been completely isolated from the outside world through some sort of energy net? <laughs> not likely, but uh, it just frazzles you a little bit. It shakes you up. And I always wonder if perhaps I am being a little paranoid if my foil hat is getting a little too tight. But I don't think so. I've seen enough. I've seen enough and I've said too damn much. I've said enough and I've said too much. And it's no wonder that you it, it's no wonder that you guys are are listening to this happen. You know, there's times when I take long breaks from doing the show. And as soon as I come back on, boom I got that little bit of discouragement, that roadblock, that stifling of momentum. And it's not a coincidence. Maybe it's technology. Maybe it's magic. There are ways that you can sabotage a person, that you can sabotage an entity like this show by bending prob probability, by using intent, by using spells and rituals to cause 
random happenings to occur that create roadblocks like this. There's ways to block a person's energy and block their magic with your own. There are ways to do that. And that could be it too. I don't know. That might be venturing a little bit too far off the deep end, but these things that happen, they seem to happen kind of spontaneously, but at the same time, they seem to happen at very key moments. So I really have to wonder, is this a magical-based attack? Is it a technology-based attack? We could speculate on it forever, but it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if our enemies are humans, rich, powerful humans that hoard all the money and wealth and pass on these secrets for controlling the populace. It could be them. It could be aliens, of course. There's always that. It could be aliens from outer space. It could be aliens from other dimensions. It could be aliens under our very feet living within the hollow earth or the flat earth even. The possibilities are endless. It could be artificial intelligence. It could be Skynet coming after us, working through the past to try to screw up our future. There's so many possibilities. And we do hear this term, the end of days. And if it was indeed the end of days, if it was some sort of revelation scenario, if it was a great awakening of some kind or a new age, then you'd have to expect stuff like this to happen. There are people out there that wish to bring about a new age and a new consciousness. And in my opinion, it's already happened. Uh, you know, the the whole 60s hippie movement and all of that, I, I think that's definitely part of it. I think that a lot of the stuff that you're seeing today, um, you know, the 2012 stuff, I think that's a big part of it too. I think there's many parts of what's going on, and it's not just one religion or belief system, it's all of them. And we are headed into some very strange and unknown territory, and I'm nothing but a pioneer. I'm nothing but a guy just trying to pilot this black ship into the night, into the void, and venture into strange, unknown things, and venture into places where I probably shouldn't go for my own sake, for my own safety, for my own peace of mind, for my own happiness. I probably shouldn't even get into this stuff, but I can't stop. I can't stop because I hate it. I hate this prison that we are all in. I hate it. And I will not stop until we are all free, until we all reconnect with that true, meaningful thing out there. You can call it God. You can call it the source. You can call it wisdom or higher learning or the higher self. I can't stop until we all connect back to that. And there's a lot of shit in the way. All of these Luciferians, these secret societies, these New Agers, these elites, they are in the way because they are vampires and they gain energy and they gain power from our misery. What they take from us is their gain. And they've kept us in this prison for thousands upon thousands of years. It's just like Greg just said. This is, this is a cult that goes back to Babylon and probably even long before that, to Atlantis and even before that. Stuart Swerdlow said these techniques, these mind control techniques have been around for billions of years. And we are all mind controlled. We are all programmed. Our beliefs, our thoughts, our dreams, how much of that is even real? How much of, is it, how much of it is even you? And how much of it is this grand show, this grand play that's just playing out before our eyes? 
you think that news you're watching on TV is real? I'm sure some of it is, but it ain't all real. A lot of it's swerved. A lot of it is fake news. That's a popular term nowadays, right? And it is fake. It's always been fake. Look how much money it gets spent on war propaganda. Look at what the Nazis were doing. And look look at what the Allies were doing during World War II. It was all about propaganda, mind control, getting everybody to get all worked up and go fight the enemy, making the enemy seem inhuman, devilish, demonic, make make the enemy seem like monsters that deserve to be killed and to make it seem like it's ethical to rid the world of them. Whether you're on one side or the other, that's what was going on, and it still goes on. We are all mind-controlled. And you probably think that you're free, but it's only because you're not aware enough to know that you're in chains. Uh, but I'm pissed. I mean, you know, the Hillary Clintons of the of the world love for this show to be shut down. The Condoleezza, Condoleezza Rices of the world. Who knows? Maybe even the Donald Trumps, for all of you <laughs> Trump haters out there. But the people that are free, you people out there that have freed your minds or freed your minds to a certain extent, this show's for you. This is to give you a break from all that bullshit out there. And I don't pretend like I always hit that mark. I don't pretend like every show is gold. But, yeah, some of our shows are pretty freaking gold. They're platinum, even. And it's no surprise that we may have attracted the eye, the eye of Sauron, the great big black out there, the the black sun, Sauron himself, <laughs> Vader, or the Emperor, <laughs> D- Darth uh, Sidious. <laughs> oh my God, I'm I'm sorry, I'm just shaken up. I'm I'm so sick of this. I, you know, so much work goes into this show. And I really had something special planned, and I really wanted to—I really wanted to help, because that's what this has always been about. It's been about helping this cause, this this cause that is hopefully good and just, and on the side of wisdom and light and that which is good and positive. It, it truly is a battle of good versus evil. At the end of the day, I believe I'm a good person. I'm not perfect. I have many flaws. I alienate people, I say stupid things, I screw up. But I believe I'm basically a good person, and I don't deserve this. This is supposed to be America. What happened to freedom of speech? You people out there that would actually shut down this show, I know you're listening, and what is it that makes you think that you are so special that you should have the power to tell me what I can and can't say? What makes you believe that you're so damn special and you should have that type of power? Was it just granted to you as a birthright? Y'all don't know who you're fucking with. I'm a god. You don't fuck with a god. I could obliterate you with a thought. Keep that in mind. Don't fuck with me. I'll fight back. I will fight back. You don't know what type of power I have. Even if you kill me, you'll just make me more powerful than ever. Just like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, I gotta get off this. This is just ruining my weekend. I'm sorry for all the negativity out there. I'm sorry, you guys. 
Usually this show is more fun. I'm pissed. Let me check my cell phone to just see if I've gotten any word. I apologize for the delay. Of course, nothing. No word. Nothing. It's disturbing. <sighs> but i got to move on. There's other stuff we got to talk about. we got to get off of this. So let me first start off by apologizing. Some of you may have heard me munching on a pepperoni stick during that interview or attempt at an interview. I didn't realize my mic was on. I do apologize. I caught it pretty quick, but I could almost psychically perceive some of you out there thinking, oh my God, how gross, he's eating. <laughs> I could literally hear it. So I do apologize to you guys out there that happened to catch me munching on that pepperoni stick. I do love pepperoni sticks. And that's also why we were a little late getting on air. I had to run over to the convenience store and grab a pack of pepperoni sticks. Because this is the one day a week where I allow myself to eat those crappy foods, to kill myself with caffeine and sugar and grease, all those wonderful things in life that our brains crave. So, oh man, where do I even start? I should talk about Comic-Con. That'll cheer me up. So Comic-Con was amazing. As many of you know, I am a huge nerd. I've been into comic books since I was a kid. And of course, I took a long break when I got into junior high, high school, because I don't want to be one of those nerds who read comic books. I was very self-conscious, and I cared what people thought, so I gave up something that brought me a lot of joy and pleasure in life that I really loved, because I was too concerned with what other people think. But I'm glad to say that I've gotten past that, and it didn't just happen. I, I got past it years and years ago, obviously. Oh, okay, it looks like the guest is back. So <laughs> perhaps all of that ranting and raving, perhaps uh, perhaps it was just a big miscommunication, or not a miscommunication, but perhaps it was a mishap. Or not even that, it was just a random, random sort of thing where we lost the internet connection. Let's see if we can get him back. Yeah, I'm, I'm real sorry, everybody. This show is just all over the place. It will be edited, but, you know, there's only so much we can do. Oh, <laughs> another message from Greg. He says, uh, sorry, the trolls must be out in full force today. I have to agree with that. There's definitely something going on. But we will con get connected back with him, and we'll just keep trying, because we don't give up. That's part of it, is to have that willpower, and to be able to just keep going no matter what happens. Oh, there he is. He's calling now. Hello. I apologize. We get this sometimes. It, yeah, and... And you are really far away, and it's no surprise that we lost our connection, but there's always that part of me that wonders if we got shut down, because I, I can tell you this show has been shut down before. It's always a possibility, and it, that would be that would comport with my own experience as well. And I do know that it's been happening to a lot of other broadcasters, podcasters, radio hosts lately. It, it seems to be happening more and more. I've heard this. Yeah, I've heard this uh, from a number of people. So, um, hmm. 
Yeah, it's disturbing. I mean, of course, there's no way to prove it. There are technical problems that happen, and they're very common. But who knows? I just like to uh, keep pushing forward and exert a little willpower when we run into roadblocks. Yeah, yeah. So if you wanted to uh, pick up where we left, I don't know at what point I got cut off, though. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, coincidentally, um, you got cut off right after I mentioned um, you know, the other types of researchers that have been harassed or, um, you know, had things done to them, people that have been involved with free energy or alternative healing or even uh, stuff like Planet X research. It does seem that um, there's certain topics that can be very dangerous. And surprisingly, it's not um, really the, the stuff about aliens and stuff like that. It seems to be more about free energy and alternative healing methods. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, to pick up where we left off before we got cut off, I was getting into this, um, the subject of this uh, a book that came out, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago for now, but uh, Jerry Varsalatis wrote a book called Lost uh, Science. And, you know, it has all of these elements that describe, you know, where would our world be if there wasn't all of the suppression of technology? What, where would we be if the things that really benefit mankind were not so severely suppressed by the elite? And, he goes to example out of example, um, and uh, you know I also mentioned that I had written an essay in the summer of 2018 about these 30 medical doctors who have been assassinated. You know I love how these these people you know end up with uh, two or three shots in the back of the head and they they declare a, a suicide. Like somebody could actually shoot themselves in the back of the head two or three. You know these, these kind of things, and I've documented it. Uh, uh, this, there's a website called stevequail.com. He's documented it. And yeah, it, it's a sad world that we live in because the things that are really in a position to benefit mankind and form a, a more cooperative reciprocal relationship with nature are consistently, um, are consistently suppressed in one form or fashion, sometimes more violently than others. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the things that I documented, I thought was pretty interesting is that uh, there was a there was a clinic in Savannah, Missouri, uh, about an hour out of St. Louis, and this from 1896 until 1956, a span of 60 years. These people cured this clinic cured 70 to 80 thousand cases of cancer, some of the most severe can cases of cancer you'll ever see, using methods that are very similar to what we have. So you know that we use here in, in South America, and you know the story of this clinic, their Dr. Perry Nichols Cancer Sanatorium, Savannah, Missouri. You will find this amazing story of Americana, of consistent curing of the most advanced cancers imaginable, completely suppressed. You'll find, won't find it in any of the history books. I actually had to go to the museum there. It's the Andrew County Museum to actually dig up old records and photographs and everything else to get a kind of a complete history of it. But it's amazing that something like that could actually have existed in American history, and you won't find out about it anywhere. There's thousands of cases like that, thousands. Amazing things that have happened that could have really advanced the cause of, advanced the human condition and the humanity's relationship with nature and has been completely suppressed. And um, that's why I, it it bothers me so much when I, encounter people who have this um, 
complete confidence in all things related right. to what the government does, and it's it's it's, it's completely misplaced. Would you completely say? Misplaced. Would you say that the majority of people out there are brainwashed or even mind controlled? To a great extent, yes. I think that the, I think between the you know the educational system and the GMO foods and the fluorine in the water, you know the <laughs> the chemtrails, which Dan Wigington is so well documented, and uh, just I, I get into this thing in Metatopia Chapter Four about something called battle adaptation. Humans have a range of adaptation: hot, cold, uh, with you know er- periods of drought, periods of I mean, like in Venezuela, they got they got indigenous that live in the forest, and there's no food for three months out of the year. How do they live? Well, they eat clay. They literally eat clay. For three months out of the year, they eat nothing but clay. There's no food. I mean, uh, uh, human beings have amazing, amazing range of adaptation, but you get into the realm of maladaptation when you introduce human beings into conditions that they were never meant to adapt to. That's why cancer has proliferated exploded uh, within the last uh, century, century and a half because of all of these uh, compounded aspects of maladaptation that are central to to living. Um, there's a, a book that was written called Electrification, um, Electricity and the Diseases of Civilization. You know, we don't even realize we all live in these homes that have, you know, uh, 120 cycles, 60, 60 volt, you know, power. We don't really realize how it affects the human body, which really is a piece of uh, uh, quite a nifty piece of uh, bioelectromagnetism, we don't really realize all these different things compounded affect the human condition. But to get to your earlier question, does it affect human intelligence? Does it dumb us down? Does it kind of produce this kind of zombification of the general public? And I would hardly say that the evidence is clear yet. I have a book in my library. It's um, written by a Frazier Titler was a, a history book, General History of Civilization. History of Civilization, I think it was written around 1806, but it was in constant publication up through 1825. I can tell you that the average graduate of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, any of the Harvard League schools, any school in America, get me a graduate, a four-year, person with a four-year degree, and they are not going to be able to read this book written in the English language as well as a 12-year-old could 200 years ago. Now, why is that? Well, it's this kind of general process of you know, dumbing, dumbing the public down. The richness of language, the richness of sentence structure and, and thought, the depth of thought, it's, it's something that eludes the simplicity of the modern, of, of the modern mind. And it, it's very clear the direction we've gone to is this general dumbing down of the general public. It sounds like schools probably pay a, play a major role in this. I mean, we're taught what history and science they feel that we should be taught. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you say that we are poisoning ourselves with these bad foods? Well, this is really interesting. This is really really interesting. I had a I had a company that I founded in 1995 called soybean.com. Uh, Lumen Foods. We manufactured meat analogs. I had a manufacturing plant in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and we 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 uh, made meat analogs. I had a a product. It's still being sold today. It's in health food stores all over America. It's called Stonewall's Jerky. It's a vegetarian jerky. It tastes like beef jerky. 
or chicken jerky, or there's a variety of flavors, but it's actually uh, soy-based. Well, the thing was is that that product is made with some texture tested protein. I had was getting the product actually made for me by uh, Archer Daniels Midland in their Decatur, Illinois plant. And there became this transition in the 90s where uh, the soy became increasingly more and more GMO and less and less non-GMO. And so because of my previous work with the Center for Science and the Public Interest in Washington, D.C., I actually initially came out and said, in so many words, this is a tempest teapot. This is a big to-do over nothing. There's no clear evidence that there's anything wrong with GMO food. I was actually, in a sense, pro-GMO. There was an article on me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. This all happened in early 2000, like January, January, February 2000. And I started doing speaking engagements. I was hired by the IFT, the Institute of Food Technologists in Chicago, to do speaking engagements on the subject. And then in a very embarrassing career move, about, mm, about three years later, I had to reverse course. It was very embarrassing. Now, why did I do that? Well, the reason I did it is because by that time, more you know, this is what happens when you throw out the precautionary principle. More studies were coming out on the genetic damage that you experienced by eating GMO foods. More and more evidence was coming out about uh, the fact that there is a substantial GMO foods and non-GMO foods. I mean, this is the reason. Look, at, you got this company, Monsanto, that's the biggest cheerleader of GMO foods. And in their own cafeteria, they banned G. Can you imagine this? GMO foods are banned in the Monsanto uh, corporate uh, cafeteria. It's like, well, we're going to let all the, everybody else in America eat the rat poison, but we know better. Right, this, you know, it, it's just, it, it's perverted. It's just so perverted. No, there's, there, there's, when you take and you start fooling with the genetic structure, of these, we just don't appreciate the perfection in, in nature. We don't. And we meddle with things we know so little about. And there's, you know, again, what this is what happens when you throw out the precautionary principle. You know, it takes time for things to be determined to be safe and healthy and to, to really understand their impact on the environment. These things take time. They can't be rushed through. Like they rush through uh, aspartame, which is unbelievably neurotoxic, you know, and claimed it was a perfectly natural sugar, you know, sweetener, artificial sweetener. It takes time to really have a full grasp of things when you create things that nature uh, put into motion over periods of millions and millions of years. So, you know, we are we are very much our cultures like the 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 Disney movie, the the, the Sorcerer's Apprentice. You know, we we play God and we 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 play with forces of nature that we don't fully understand. And uh, in that, I make the claim that therein lies our undoing. Or as uh, Neil Postman, Neil Postman wrote the, the late Neil Postman wrote the book. You know, he makes the statement that the cheerleaders of technology are always prepared to tell you the wonderful things that their technologies will do, and they always fail to warn you about all the things they will undo.
it seems they're always kind of in a rush to get their products and their new chemicals out there on the market so that they can actually start making money off of it right away. Yeah, it's 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 a rush to it, it's this time frame where everything is about short term profits and we don't care about what the impact is on this generation or the next generation of the phone. We don't care what the imp, what what the implications are for the planet as long in the short term we can turn turn a buck. It's it's a it's a very twisted way of looking uh, looking at the world and looking at our, our relationship with the world and, and nature herself. And this Monsanto, it really seems to be the epitome of everything that's wrong. That um, it, it w I became aware of the fact that President Obama actually signed some stuff to protect Monsanto years ago, and, and that's what kind of got me off of his bandwagon. Well, yeah, I, it's uh, <laughs> you know, it, again, it's um, everything in our culture is built around the premacy of this artificial construct called money. Because money wasn't created by nature. We created money. We created this, this artificial construct called money. And when you place money, something that has the ability to devalue the, the, the things that are at the very pillars of, of man's relationship with the surroundings, um, that, 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 there's your undoing. We literally have built a foundation. Our entire civilization is built on this foundation. The very bedrock of that foundation is the, the supremacy of, of, of money, of an artificial construct. And you can't have reciprocal relationships with nature if you're constantly going after this other artificial construct, which actually devalues nature. It's very, very corrosive. It's very corrosive. And I make the claim in my book, The Joys of Psychoprothocracy, that what it actually leads to is planetary death. That's the direction that we're headed in. And then and and it's the the direct the influence of money is the direct result of why we're seeing habitat collapse all over the world. It's why you have all these migrants going hither and yon. You now have large swaths of land in the North Africa and in the Middle East where you can grow nothing. You know, people who don't know their, their bio, evolutionary biology don't understand that that's usually how species do go extinct. That would include human through habitat collapse. Uh, we've been oceans all over the world. I first wrote about this in 1986 in a book called Lumen Food for a New Age. We have these things in the ocean that are called dead zones and they're like 50 miles wide 150 miles long, and they're, they're growing. And inside these dead zones, there is almost nothing alive. There are, there are some microbes, but there's almost nothing alive. There are no fish. There are no whales. There are no dolphins. There are no advanced life forms. There are no, there's no jellyfish. It's dead. It's all dead. And these dead zones are actually growing. A Fukushima has produced numerable uh, dead zones. And now we're seeing dead zones on land. And this <laughs> You know, and, and this has going, been going on for a while now. A lot of people don't know that this is the Sahara Desert in northern Africa. The Sahara used to be extremely verdant. It used to be like the um, like the Amazon is today. It used to be a very verdant area. And through a, a, through what people did <laughs> like 4,000 years ago, 
This is talked about, by the way, extensively in a book by Steve Taylor called The Fall. What happened is that it was turned into a lifeless mass, and that lifeless mass is growing. Now, again, that's why you've got all these migrants trying to get out of Africa. When you can't grow food and you can't support livestock, um, that's that's the end. That, that That's how you end. That, that's how... Uh, that be, that becomes your swan song as a species when you can no longer, uh, you know, you can no longer produce produce or find food, and that's where we're headed. And you know, I I love it when people say, well, yeah, you say that, but we almost have a population of eight billion people. Well, pe- you know, if, if people understood their biology, they would know that populations most often have their greatest population number just prior to to Overshoot, crash, and die off. That's an that's, that's a fact. Book written in 1980 called Overshoot by William uh, Catton. No relation. And um, that's, and that's where we're at. That's that's the point that we're at right now. Yes, we have this huge population, but we've gone far into overshoot, and we're about to experience mass die off again. In the absence of some kind of external um, event, divine event, cosmic event, if you will. No, we, we are very clearly headed in the in the direction of extinction. And this has been going on for a long time. I remember when the Silicon Valley billionaire, Bill Joy, who's a co-founder of Sun Microsystems, wrote a book, wrote an article for Wired Magazine back in 2002. And the title of the article was, Why the Future Does Not Need Us. And the gist of the article was, we have produced so many different developments from so many different angles, all of which um, spell human extinction in the short term, the only real question is which one is going to be the dominant, which 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 factors are going to be the dominant one, but they're all there on the table. And I remember at the time, because keep in mind this is almost 16 years ago, people were aghast because this wasn't some, uh, you know, this wasn't some floozy, you know, left-wing writer or whatever, but this was this person who was, who was a Silicon Valley billionaire slash intellectual saying, you know, I, I, I think that I think what we're looking at is our our end. In other words, in a matter of speaking, what Bill Joy was saying is, I sense an end of days, and it's only become more evident since that time in these fifteen, sixteen intervening years. That this is where we're headed. I remember people were shocked. Guy McPherson was out there saying, yeah, I think the humanity has another 10, 12 years. You know, people were just in shock over it. Uh, and that's why I interviewed him last May. But when you actually go to his website, it's actually guymcpherson.com, he has this 32,000-word essay that goes into the 69 different ecological feedback loops, all of which are uh, compounding the problem with uh, ecological collapse. And... You can't read that without going, without having this aha moment where you go, oh my God. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the direction is clear. The timing, you know, I'm not going to argue about timing because whether humanity is looking at its end in 10 or 15 or 30 or even 50 years, um, it doesn't really matter. The other thing that I think is important in this discussion that very few people talk about is there's a lag time. There's a lag time in between. Um, there's a lag time in between the fact when you actually have a event, a series of events that affect the ecology, and when you actually experience the end result. 
hold on just one moment, please. No problem. So, it's kind of like a super tanker. You know that when you have a super tanker, if you want to make a turn to the left, you'd better start planning at 25 miles out. You can't turn on a dime. It takes a long time to turn a super tanker. Now, how much larger is planet Earth than a super tanker? And Guy McPherson came to the conclusion in the early 2000s that we had already passed a point of no return. We were good little boys and girls. We got rid of all the cars. We had no more, you know, was no more. We could get, we could somehow, as if by magic, eliminate the CO2 problem, eliminate the problem with the methane hydrates, eliminate uh, the problem that is produced by uh, Fukushima and all these other underreported leaking nuclear power plants, of which there are now well in excess of 400. Let's assume we could all do that as if by magic. McPherson came to the conclusion, and he is, is a very logical exposition how he comes up with this, that it just wouldn't matter. We're all going to be good little boys and girls from now on, and we're going to, as if by magic, write off all the, the effects of industrialization. It wouldn't matter. And why is that? It's because of the approximately a 40-year lag time between the effects of what we do to the, what we do to the earth, to the, uh, the climate, all this geoengineering and everything else are doing, and the end result. It just doesn't like all of a sudden we do something and we get the result tomorrow. It's like the super tanker metaphor. It has to be planned far out, and we have passed that point of no return. There's no turning back now. There is either some kind of divine or cosmic intervention, or we're not going to be able to change the direction of this. It's through a simple series of processes of linear regression, we can clearly see that we are headed for not only the extinction of humanity, but most advanced life forms on this planet. So it's not a stretch. It's not at all a stretch. I remember how stunned I was when these two Canadian biologists went, took a 250-kilometer stretch along the coast of British Columbia and started collecting samples. They were absolutely aghast. They couldn't believe how many species had died off how many well-established um, ecosystems were, were collapsing and how much extinction they were actually able to witness and document. They were just, they were just, they couldn't believe it. And of course, most of that is uh, from Fukushima and, and, and it's, it's just absolutely gut-wrenching to watch just how the government plays people stupid to try to you know, hide it. I remember there was an article of, not long ago, there was a series of articles and TV clips about the collapse of a starfish. They're dying all over the place. They're they're on they're on the verge. They're going to be extinct soon. And uh, they came up with these loopy explanation. Well, it's because of some unknown bacteria. When it's it's clearly obvious that it's a result of Fukushima. I had a friend of mine who's got this thing called the Identifinder. It's not a cheap device. This sucker costs thirty five thousand dollars for all the attachments. And I was, I remember bragging to him saying, look at my Geiger counter. It's up at high, you know, thank God I live in the Andes Mountains. Thank God my home is at 10,000 feet in the Andes, blah, blah, blah. He says, we'll just see how accurate your Geiger counter is. He pulls out his identifier finder, and all of a sudden I hear these series of beeps, beep, beep, beep. And I'm going, what's that? He goes, well, that, you got, that's a gamma ray burst. Well, what's that? Well, he says, that's, you know, Iodine 131. Well, what's that? Well, that's it. 
every one of these beeps represented an alert because there were a natural level of radioactive isotopes that are only the result of uh, Fukushima. There's nothing, it's only the result of power plant activity because these isotopes don't exist naturally in nature. And I remember spending an hour with my friend and his identifying her, and I was just absolutely shocked that I thought that I was safe here because of the trade winds. They don't blow from the west to the east. They blow from the east to the west, from the outside of the equator. And because of the way the trade went, I was just under this illusion that I was going to be better off than, you know, everybody in the United States where we're seeing outrageous levels of uh, high levels of radiation. Again, the result of uh, Fukushima and other nuclear accidents in the past, including going all the way back to Chernobyl in 1986. So I thought it was safe. No, no, I'm not safe. The, the, the whole planet's being affected. And as I've said in a number of articles, this has been warned about for a long time. I remember Walter Russell wrote in 1957, he wrote a book called Atomic Suicide. And the gist of it was this. You stupid idiots keep playing around with these nuclear power plants. You keep playing around with this. You're going to produce a lifeless planet. That's what you're going to do. The whole purpose of these, these very heavyweight radioactive compounds like plutonium and uranium, their place in the universe is that they are, they are the destroyers. They're in very minute amounts in the subsoil. They help break rocks down into sand, sand into soil, soil into, in, in, into to, uh, soil with high amounts of organic material that it can actually grow through. They have their place in the universe. What we do is we take the destroyers, we take the destroyers and we concentrate them. We concentrate them to produce, you know, nuclear materials. And, and, and again, it's once again playing with nature, not realizing that we have subverted the purpose for which those elements exist in creation. And uh, it's, you know, I, I'm just amazed. If Fukushima could do this much damage, what would ever happen if we ever did really have a um, an EMP? What would really happen? What would happen if we had, uh, you know, Fukushima by itself is an ELE. What would happen if we had five or ten or fifteen Fukushimas? Uh, we just, we just, we have extinction heading our way from so many different directions. Again, as Bill Joy alluded to in his 2002 Wired magazine article, it's really only a matter of debating which do you think is going to be the most dominant killing event, wipes out most forms of life on Earth. Yeah, you know what's what's uh, ironic about what you're saying, Greg, is um, here I live in the Pacific Northwest, and it's known for being such a beautiful area and for having salmon and, and orcas and seals and all kinds of things. And as the years go by, that stuff is thinned out more and more. There's no longer the sea life that used to be in the water. It's, it's either been uh, driven out by pollution or, or maybe Navy sonar or something is just killing all the fish and all the things that live in the water. And it's really sad because we're losing something that can never be uh, returned in any way. That's exactly right. I remember um, I had a ayahuasca, a series of ayahuasca uh, experiences. Again, this is the book I wrote called um, The Gospel of 2012 According to Ayahuasca. I actually encountered spirits, spirit, because, you know, each species of plant has a spirit on the other side. You can actually experience in these spirit beings using malakawa. I, I prefer malakawa. It could be ayahuasca. Uh, these various um, ethnogenic materials where you can actually go on the other side and experience these spirit beings. And the, the, the spirits of plants that had gone extinct on Earth 
actually they mourn on the other side. They mourn their lack of representation in the third dimensional world. The spirit, the, the plant spirit still exists even after the plant itself has gone extinct, which I thought was a really, really, really interesting experience. As it relates to what you just said a moment ago about, you know, declining light biomass, you know, I moved to Louisiana in 1984. I didn't move out until 2007. And even in that short span of time, we're only talking 23 years, what I saw was um, dramatic, absolutely dramatic. I mean, the the in terms of insect life, amphibian life, I remember there used to always be frogs and toads in the world. You, you always used to see frogs, toads, of amphibians. And the year I left in 2007, I remember remarking to my wife, has it been, what, three or four years since we've seen a frog or seen a toad? We, it was gone. There's these... But anyone in your audience who's from Louisiana is going to know exactly what I'm about to talk about. We have these things called love bugs, and they have, their mating season is summer, and they're black bugs with little painted little little red on them. And the male and the female will join up uh, in mating, and you can be driving down I-10 from the border with Texas all the way to Mississippi, and you'll get these suckers all over your windshield. So I'm talking to a friend six months ago. <laughs> six months or whatever it was last summer, and I said, uh, you know, how's the how's the problem with the love bugs this year? And he said to me, it's kind of really weird. There's hardly any of them around this year, and these things were like locusts every year living in southern Louisiana, and now they're almost gone, and that's just one species of many. So when I say habitat collapse, I know exactly what I'm talking about. I witnessed it just for the 23 years I lived in southern Louisiana. Bayou country, from a very, very verdant, full of life, just absolutely teeming with life environment in the dark, hot, humid bayou country of southern Louisiana to what it was when I left. And it, the change was nothing short of dramatic. And that process, that, that, that process of loss of biomass is only accelerating. It's only accelerating. This is what researchers are documenting. Do you feel so, that the yeah. one thing that I've heard and you know reading about this type of stuff, the uh, psychedelic research and and uh, you know listening to interviews and reading about it, uh, some people have said that the ayahuasca plant actually has some sort of consciousness of its own, and it sounds like you uh, pretty much alluded to something like that. That perhaps there's a um, when we do use these substances that somehow it allows us to uh, actually speak with them in, in some sort of a, a, maybe a telepathic form? Well, that, there, there's no – well, first of all, let me let me say this, because people – there's some people think I was – well, I didn't have that experience. The shamans here in the Amazon, they have a, they have a, they have a saying here, you don't choose ayahuasca. Ayahuasca chooses you. If you were to ask my wife what she thought of ayahuasca, she'd say, well, I – interesting. I saw some geometric forms. I saw some snakes and spiders and this and that. And that was it. Totally uneventful. My experiences with ayahuasca are nothing like my wife's. I actually communicate with spirit beings. I'm actually able to see glimpses of future timelines on the earth. I'm actually able to to go into the to, to the noetic and to the astral realm. And, you know, I'm actually able to experience these things. And I go into, like I said, I go into great depth and in explaining 
how this all works in, in the book I wrote called The Gospel of 2012 According to Ayahuasca. So, number one, it's important to establish that not everyone has the same experience. And by the way, this is the same as species. And I have friends of mine that go on and on and on. I was just a, unbelievable experiences were with psilocybin mushroom. Look, I've, t- I've taken psilocybin mushrooms. It just didn't do that for me. It doesn't invalidate the experiences of my friends. Their, ex- their experiences are valid and real and genuine. But I just don't have that. I don't, for whatever reason, I just don't have that connection with psilocybin mushroom that my friends do. But on ayahuasca, and to a lesser extent on San Pedro cactus, both of which are both, both of which are obtainable here, I have remarkable journeys, and I am able to actually communicate with spirit beings. I mean, in my in the Gospel of 2012, I actually talk a lot about my personal relationship with ayahuasca spirit. We call her abuela, Spanish for grandmother, because it's a very female, it's a very elderly female spirit, uh, as opposed to say. San Pedro, which is a very male, masculine plant spirit, or Vilca, Vilca seed, the Vilca tree, a very, uh, again, a very masculine spirit, but, but ayahuasca is feminine, the, the vine, it comes from the vine, and the vine is very, the vine is very feminine, and I go into this, <laughs> sometimes I, I read things I wish I hadn't, but uh, my explanation, my, my relationship with the ayahuasca spirit with Abuela borders on the romantic. It's 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 uh, I've had just absolutely incredible experiences that I wouldn't have had any other way, and moreover, they are experiences for which there's no other uh, there's nothing else I could compare it to in the normal waking state of consciousness. There's, there's nothing there's nothing you can compare it to. It's that singular in in, in its expression and in the way you internalize it. Yeah, it's it's really really fascinating. I've uh, you know I, I've partaken in ayahuasca myself, and um, it, it was a little bit too intense. I, I had many experiences that were similar to what you described, but um, it, it just opened up the door to something that was just so vast and so alien, but at the same time healing. That I felt like I just had enough from what little I did, and I I didn't really need to go back because it was just so overwhelming. Yeah, there's some people that have that. Um, a lot of it too it, it, uh, is based on intentionality. Why you're taking it, you know. Um, I take it because I'm on a quest for knowledge. I want to know certain things. I want to see future timelines. I want to be able to experience. I want to be able to communicate with beings in the spirit realm that influence this one. So, you know, but the kind of the result you get with these. Antigenic materials is also a lot based on what your intentions are. Daniel Pinchbeck, the British author, tells a story of a friend of his. He tells a story of um, they're they're doing magic mushrooms. I think they're in Oaxaca, down in Mexico. And uh, I guess the protocol is you take three of these mushroom buds and then you 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 know you wait for forty five minutes to an hour and then your journey starts. Well, he took these. Uh, he took his friend took these mushroom buds and. After after an hour or so, nothing was happening. So he goes into the kitchen to, I guess, grab a beer from the refrigerator. Thinks nothing's going to happen. Closes the refrigerator door, and uh, a three foot, a four foot, and a five foot tall mushroom are standing in front of him. <laughs> and the tallest of and the tallest of the three asks him, "Why did you eat us?" And the um, 
he's like, oh, wow, this is unbelievable. Look, I'm just trying to get a buzz here. The three mushrooms communicate with themselves telepathically. The tallest of the three turns back to Daniel Pinchbrook's friend and says to him, if you ever eat us again, we will kill you. And they disappear. And then he has one of the worst trips of his entire life. By contrast, the same thing happened to Daniel Pinchbeck. He eats the three mushrooms. Same thing. Doesn't, you know, takes a while. Doesn't, doesn't think maybe anything's happening. But finally, these three mushrooms appear. And uh, the same exact question. Why did you eat us? And Daniel says, because I'm on a journey and I'm on the quest for knowledge or something like that. If I can't remember the way exact way he communicated it telepathically. The three mushrooms again confer amongst themselves, and the tallest mushroom turns to Finchbeck and says, very well, continue on your journey. And they disappear, and his journey begins. What's the lesson from this? The lesson is that what you get from an entheogenic journey, the knowledge you achieve, and this is particularly relevant when you're trying to unearth information about end of days, the information you get is going to be based on the intentionality into which you went into it in the first place. I mean, when I do a journey, like a couple hours before I even take the material, I can feel that the spirits are already excited and they're already wanting to communicate. I can because they know what I'm about to do. They can sense it from their side. So, like, there's this anticipation before I even before I even take the material. It's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's I feel I feel in a way that that Western culture, because it's had this idea that, you know, any drugs that are not controlled by the powers that be, you know, that, that um, it's this kind of view of anything that, that alters human consciousness to be a negative or to be something that just um, drug abusers take. It, it's totally, totally misplaced because here in the cult, in the indigenous cultures here in South America, there's a deep and abiding respect for entheogens and the ability to use these plant materials to obtain advanced knowledge about the universe that's obtainable in no other way. Have you seen any of this stuff about there being a, a grand, vast conspiracy to cause our pineal glands to become calcified and non-functional? I've, heard, I've seen bits and pieces of it. I don't doubt that it exists. Maybe it's another reason I'm down here. I mean, the food here is, you know, we eat primarily, you know, organic vegetables, you know, from our from the farm, organic fruits and vegetables. Um, I don't doubt that the goal of the elite is to close down human perception, of which the pineal gland is a very important part of our ability to ex to, to access. Uh, higher levels of information, so I don't I don't doubt it. I, I don't know I don't have any kind of inside knowledge if that's what you mean. But if you're asking me, do I believe like something like that is actually ongoing? Uh, I have no doubt that, that they would. Let's put it this way: if if I if I was evil and corrupt and Lucifer worshiping and all of this other stuff that the people that run this world are, yeah, I'd want to do that. Yeah, that sounds good to me. We've got to dumb people down. We've got to zombify them. Yeah, that's important. Let's close down the pineal. Makes perfectly good sense to me. 
Yeah, and it does also make sense when you consider the fact that the rainforest is being destroyed and a lot of these very rare plants, uh, there's a possibility that they might be destroyed completely. There could be things that could cure disease and things that can unlock our consciousness. And if we don't keep cutting the trees down and make more room for uh, you know, McDonald's, cow pastures, and things like that, we're, we're going to completely lose it. Well, again, we're seeing such a deep recession, and um, we're seeing so much bio, you know, loss of uh, reduction in biomass. Um, I have no doubt that that's part of their goal. You know, it's interesting, go along with something you just said. Uh, I documented a story. I'm the only one that I know that's ever documented it. It was a man named Ferguson, Dr. Rayburn Ferguson, who discovered a cure for cancer here in South America. I am told this is the basis for the script, which became the 1992 movie with Sean Connery called Medicine Man. Didn't happen in Brazil, as in the movie. It happened in Ecuador. He created a drug, an herbal product, for which he was going to actually get, uh, he wanted to file a, Ferguson wanted to file a drug application for it, and he called his cancer cure amatocin. So I happened through connections to track down Dr. Ferguson's daughter and her Ecuadorian husband, who the last time I checked, which was like 20 years ago, they lived in Houston, Texas. And I asked them, is it possible to resurrect this, this another incredible cancer cure, amatocin? And the husband, I don't can't remember their names now. The the daughter, his daughter, and, and son-in-law. Um, he, I remember him saying, "Well, the problem is, is that there's been such a loss of biomass in Ecuador, even here where I am." He says, "Some of the plants that were used by my father-in-law, we can no longer find, and have reason to believe that some of them are even extinct." So. This, this this dovetails with what you just said a moment ago. You know, we're just uh, we are experiencing uh, a dramatic loss of life, and it is a process which appears to be accelerating. If somebody did want to eat better foods and um, clean up their diet, so to speak, is there an example of maybe like a breakfast, lunch, and dinner that some of my listeners might adapt that might uh, improve their life or, or clean up some of the uh, bad things that they'd normally be getting? Well, you know, um, my wife runs something called Alpha Mega Labs. It's something we founded, you know, back when she and I first met in 1990. And it became one of the first health-related websites in existence when it launched in September of 1995. And as it relates to your question, it's really equally important to get rid of um, unhealthy inputs as it is to actually eat right. Um, uh, one of the things I think is important is to have a substantial portion of your diet in native foods that have not been tampered with. For instance, we have these we have these things here in the high Andes that are called mountain papaya, chamburo, siglalon, and we make juice out of it. And we have natural blueberries, and we have natural blackberries. Um, and we actually pick them at various times of the year, and we load up on them. I grow something called uvea. You know it as goldenberry. Um, 
Physalis peruviana is the scientific name. And we eat uh, we eat raw uh, goldenberries. They're right right outside the front of my house. I'm always picking and eating raw goldenberries because they just grow. They're they're so plentiful and they grow so wild. The, it's typical because when you talk about your listenership, you know I'm sure the majority of your listeners are urbanites, and so um, I mean that's something I have to give some thought to. How do they do it? Because I, I don't live in the city; I live way out in the country, and I eat a lot of uh, wild. I eat a lot of wild foods. They compose a large percentage of my diet, um, and then we grow our own organic. We grow our own organic vegetables, and use inputs like linoleite and natural sea salt. A lot of people don't know that you. Vegetables do better when you use natural, unprocessed sea salt, um, as well as uh, worm castings and a number of other interesting organic inputs. So when you ask me what can you tell your listenership, I would say it just depends where they are, but try to eat things that are, if it's even possible, that are more natural and native to where you just happen to be. You know, where I just happen to be, is the home of the potato, the home of quinoa, the home of goldenberries. All those foods came from here. They originated from here and nowhere else. The home of uh, the mountain papaya, there's certain, the, the, the mountain papaya here is actually not only native to Ecuador, it's native to my area of the province I live in. That's how much you can actually pinpoint it. I think that it's important. I think an important part of good health is not just good food, but to feel that your food draws you into a connection, a relationship with the land. I think we were meant to have a relationship with the land that we live on. And so since lands vary from place to place, you've got different biomes, different cultures, uh, different climates. You know, I think it's important to be connected. And I don't know that I can properly answer your question only because we have so distorted our living arrangements and how we interact with our land, with how how we interact with the soil that's beneath us, it's really difficult to do that. I think it's pretty particular to do that as an, as an urbanite. Some, there's some, uh, you know, interesting books in the market, The Backyard Farmer and things like that, where you find these people growing an astonishing amount of vegetables in a relatively small pot of land in the back of their house. I really admire those people. I really do. I, I think if you can do that and you can use your influence to to take a plot of land and put enough love into it because plants really respond to our emotions um, and, and and do that, then I think that's how you get people to improve their health as where it is now where most Americans, you know, most young people now, um, a lot of them think, well, where does food come from? Well, it comes from Walmart. They have no idea. They, they're, they're so disconnected from the source of, of life, the source of food, and where they get it, how it's made, that um, you know, that they don't have an appreciation for food and how it connects us to the earth. So you know, people, each person, maybe each listener that you have has to do their own personal assessment. This is where I live. This is the things that I can grow that are native to you know to where I am. They it helps to know your USDA heat zone. Helps to know, uh, you know where you are in the USDA ag zone. I lived in southern Louisiana, so I was living in 9B. You live in southern Florida, you're a zone 11 or 12. If you're up living in Pennsylvania somewhere, you're probably zone 4 or 5. You know, it, it helps to know your zones, what grow in those areas. 
And your better seed dealers, your better seed dealers up in the North America, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, these who I used to buy from when I was up there. Anyways, most of the, most of the seed, most of the seed dealers will actually have, tell you what USDA zone is best to grow that in and just try to find those plant materials that adapt best to your, your, your land or your, your heat zone, your USDA zone so that um, you'll be able to have plants that flourish in your area. The only thing I know to do, like I say, it's, it's difficult for me to respond the way I'd like to because in my in my case, I, I mean, I really studied this area before I came here. I even bought a copy of um, Lost Crops of the Incas. Half the things I, I bought I learned from in that book, Lost Crops of the Incas. I wanted to know the people that lived here before there was the European invasion, what did they grow? But what did they eat? How did they grow it? How did they how did they produce food? These are the things I wanted to know. I wanted to know how the native peoples used to live um, on the very land that I own, and so I made that a research project before I even came here. And uh, not everyone's going to be that conscientious and go to that much trouble, but I think you would actually benefit from that kind of um, that kind of research into to where you are, what's best to grow on where you live. And how it helps bond you to the earth. And Greg, on that note, how do you feel about recreational or medical cannabis and the hemp plant? Well, I'm familiar with the work of uh, Rick Simpson. I followed it. I think that the work that's been done on the relationship between cannabis and the cannabinoids and the relationship to human neurophysiology is really quite clear. Um, I smoke marijuana fairly frequently. I don't do it to get high. I, I'm more of a what you what is traditionally being called a microdoser. You know, like one hit and I'm done. You know, um, because I think it has uh, nutritional benefits. I actually think I, I actually think of. Uh, <laughs> I was kidding a friend the other day. He was saying, you know, you know how the he was commenting about this whole Jeff Sessions thing and how they're trying to go after. Marijuana, despite the fact that umpty ump different states have said, look, it's completely legal. I was joking with him. I was saying, you know, <laughs> compared to what goes in the United States here in Ecuador, marijuana and all my favorite hallucinogens are like they're in, they're they're not considered they're not considered narcotics. They're like vegetables. It's like we have we have our own they have their own food group here. <laughs> you know, when you buy marijuana in Ecuador, it comes with a minimum recommended daily allowance. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm joking, of course, but it's nothing like it is up there. Um, and so, yeah, I uh, I very frequently um, use marijuana, but it's it's more as the idea that it's because I'm microdosing things that I think are beneficial to optimal human neurophysiology. And when you said that you were seeing some alternate feature timelines on ayahuasca. Could you give us a few more details on that? Did you see anything specifically that's going to happen or, or might happen? I think that we're on a, I saw, well, I actually wasn't in ayahuasca. I saw this on Pedro journey. I had in October, 2016. Um, <clears throat> I had this journey. I was with some friends 
And what I was told is I saw a bunch of things, even political stuff. I saw that Donald Trump was going to become president, which I was astounded. I thought, I really thought Donald Trump didn't have a chance in hell. I really didn't because all these reports of Soros controlling, George Soros controlling the voting machines and so on and so on. So, but I was told that he was going to win. I was told that, um, not that that's all that important thing to get, to pick up on a, on a, on a entheogenic journey. I was told that we are entering a period, a transitional period, but at the end of this dark age that would actually be this kind of age of enlightenment. And I was told that is a very, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It really is true that when you can see into the future, it changes. Uh, I, I, I can tell you another story that I would, would take too long about a friend of mine that went to the Brigu Sangita to see what his future was in India. Uh, so, and then I was, I've also seen timelines where there's, it's already happened. A really negative timeline has already happened and people are living like, uh, this kind of Mad Max existence. Um, my first experience with multiple timelines was in the year 1979. I was 23 years old. I was a student at, at uh, Cal State University, Northridge, near my home in the San Fernando Valley. And uh, I was was doing the TM City program, and I happened to have this situation when I was in the middle of the Pole Star Sutra. I just had this kind of Brahmic experience, and it just opened up, you know, multiple chakras. And I had an experience where I met a Greg Caden. I met a soul fragment of myself on another timeline. There are actually like two parallel universes that, that connected. In, in both of my dream state and various times when I was actually in the waking state, I encountered this other Greg Caton, this other, okay, another part of me that was existing on a parallel universe. My mother, who is one of the most psychic people I've ever known or ever met, uh, I asked her about it. I asked my mother about it. I said, have you ever heard of this? Because I'm, I'm getting freaked out. I've actually met another, uh, I've actually met another Greg Caton. And, um, my mother said, yeah, I'm very familiar with it. I said, well, have you ever encountered anything like that yourself? She says, honey, just you yourself. I have encountered 135 great cadence. Even though that's not your, that's not for your other cell soul fragments. That's not your name in these other, in these other uh, timelines. I don't know. I don't think she used the word timelines, but something. And I was so stunned by that, just not knowing what else to say. I said, mother, Quantum physicists say there must, theoretically, there must be billions of parallel universes. If there are billions of parallel universes, how could there be only 135 Greg Catons? My mother, who was an incredibly innocent person, couldn't, wasn't, didn't realize I was just being silly. I was just, uh, you know, it was, I was just trying to be humorous. She didn't pick up on that. And she looked at me and she gave me the saddest face I've ever seen. And she said, dear, I'm so sorry. I just got tired of counting. So, yeah, it's actually possible to reach a state of consciousness where you're able to actually meet pieces of yourself, other cell fragments of yourself, on other parallel universes, because it happened to me in 1979. So it sounds like you you are of the belief that psychic ability is a real, genuine, serious thing. Oh, my mother was 
a phenomenal predictor of future events. I, I, in, to the point where, well, I, in, to the point was it actually was embarrassing because, um, and sometimes even frightening. She was very, very accurate. She would see things or we'd be driving and, you know, two or three blocks down the road, she'd start, like, she was going to cry. And she said, I'd say, what's going on? And she said, that poor cat or that poor dog. And, you know, we'd do a couple more turns and there'd be this dead animal in the middle of the road. But she saw it, what happened when the animal died and she experienced what the animal was feeling. Things like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw this all growing up. I, um, My brother and I talk about it frequently. My brother and I both have certain abilities. I don't think either one of us have abilities that are anywhere near as profound as my mother's was. And it was, it's got to be genetic. My mother had a close relationship with her grandmother. And it's been reported to me that that her grandmother, my great grandmother, was even more phenomenal. They were they were all, they were all from Hungary. They all came over from Hungary. And uh, so I lived with this growing up all the time. I lived with with a mother who who had these abilities. And I'll give you just one example of many. I didn't know what to do when I got when I got my um, I, I got my two year degree. I went to, I, I graduated from Los Angeles Valley College. Just got a two year degree. Was going to transfer to North, just didn't know what to do with myself. And my mother says, well, you're going, honey, you're going in the Navy. I said, that's not going to happen. After the Vietnam War and all this other, that's not going to happen. There's no way that I would ever, for a moment, consider going in the military. You may be psychic, but this time you're wrong. And I was very adamant about that. <laughs> Lo and behold, I get a friend that hits me up and says, they got this new program, blah, 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 blah. You'll be able to get out of the military. You'll be able to go to school for five years. You get like five years of, you know, one thing led to another. We're in the middle of the recession, the Great Recession of 1975. I mean, it's a really bad time. I couldn't get a job for, for anything. I didn't know what to do with myself. I had a couple of other personal crises going on that I'm not going to get into. But the long and short of it is my mother who told me, you're going to go in the Navy. It's going to be for precise, for precisely three years. You're going to be in the Navy for three years, then you're going to go back to school. And I told my mother, I basically told my own mother, you're crazy. And in the end, I did exactly what I told my mother she was crazy for telling me. I joined the military. I was in the Navy for three years. I got out and I went back to school. I did exactly what my mother predicted I was going to do, even though I told her it was just it's not going to happen. And that's, it happened exactly the way she told me. So that, I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, stuff like that that my brother and I grew up with. It's just So when you ask me, do I believe that people can have psychic ability? Yeah, yeah, I think they can. I, I, I lived it. Yeah, I absolutely love hearing this because um, one of the other goals of this show, it, it, I hope to make people aware that this stuff, it's not comic books or sci-fi movies. It's not that. It's not fantasy. There there really are people out there with psychic abilities, as crazy as it sounds, that anybody could have any sort of superpower. This stuff is real. Yeah, it, it's, you know, I understand that... Um yeah, I understand that people think you're led to believe this is woo-woo and this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, I, I know what I lived. I know what I observed. And um, and I, not only that, this is just something I'm just pulling out of the air. I, I write about this extensively in my book, The Gospel of 2012, According to Hiawaska. I, I, wrote, I have uh, a good section of the book where I just talk about these experiences with my mother that were just shocking and how I believe that Whatever I inherited from her, the combination of that plus ayahuasca allows me to have experienced certain things. 
But uh, to, to give a richer answer to your earlier question, I, I, I think that we are going to see a positive turn of events um, for those people who are really to, who've had enough, who've had enough nonsense and are ready to graduate. And I suppose the next thing I really want to ask is how deep is this conspiracy? Earlier you mentioned the Babylonian Luciferian conspiracy. And would you say that this is the uh, elite or what some may call an Illuminati at work here? Um, I hate to use you know rigid terms because I think it's a lot broader than that. But I, I think that just generally speaking, I think the people who are, for all intents and purposes, of control of human affairs on this planet, yeah, they they are, they are basically Luciferian. It's uh, you know, I've been exposed to this for many years. I I, I guess it was in the mid '80s I was first exposed to Ralph Epperson's book, um, The Unseen Hand, and then from there, just between the combination of that and my personal experiences and what I've been through personally in the U.S. criminal justice system, what they put me through, what they put my family through. I had to hide my son in a farmhouse in southern Texas because I was told, given advance notice that federal prosecutors may be planning to steal my kid, steal, kidnap my son, kidnap my seven-year-old son, and put him in foster care and say claim to the judge that, that my, my, my wife and I shouldn't be raising him. This is the kind of stuff that I had to deal with. This is the kind of, you know, so, you know just pure evil. Just what, what I saw... What I saw up close and personal during my ordeal with the U.S. criminal justice system, all I saw, the only thing I ever saw was Luciferianism. It's the only thing I ever witnessed on all levels. And, and then when I, then, then, then I went to, when I went to prison, the things I saw there and how people were treated and, and just, you know, it, it's, uh, there's nothing normal about the system that, pe- that, that, that comprises what people call Western civilization. There's nothing normal about it. It's, as I said earlier, the its very foundation is built on an artificial construct. And when you build your entire civilization on an artificial construct, everything above the foundation is artificial. You build your, if you build your house on a correct foundation, the house will never be right. You can't write. You can't. The house is only good as the foundation is built on. And what's, what's the foundation of Western civilization built on? The supremacy of an artificial construct called money. Which is a gaming addiction, which becomes a gaming addiction. That's a whole other, that's a whole other topic for another day. But uh, yeah, and it, it's highly perverse in what it does. It's highly perverse in what, it, in how it reconstructs human interaction with 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 the environment. And what's interesting about that, in in some way, it does seem to circle us back to prophecy, even the book of Revelations. Uh, do you feel that there's any truth inside the book of Revelations? Yeah, I think I think, uh, I think what you're seeing in the United States right now is a straight reread of Revelations 18. I think all you'd have to do is just take Mystery Babylon and substitute and put the United States in there. Really. I mean, if, if you were, it's, the thing's only like whatever it is, two or three pages long. It's a short chapter. Read chapter 18 of the Book of Revelations, and you just substitute uh, Mystery Babylon in its, in its place with the United States of America. It's, it's, it reads like uh, what's happening right now. It's, 
it's amazing, really. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I have never in my Hiawassee journeys chose to go into the, into the mind of St. John of Patmos and see what he was thinking when he wrote the book of Revelations. Maybe I should do this. But, um, oh, there are definitely elements of it that just, uh, to me are, are very on target with what's happening today. What about this stuff with underground bases, uh, such as uh, the base that might be in Dulce, New Mexico, or the Denver airport? Uh, do you believe that that stuff is real? Is our is the underground being networked by some sort of vast cons- conspiracy? Are there real underground bases out there which might have all kinds of strange things going on? I absolutely think it's true. I'm good friends with uh, I'm good friends with Dr. Richard Sauter, who wrote the leading books on this subject concerning underground underground uh, military bases and underground uh, underwater bases, and he researched it quite thoroughly. There's a lot of pictures and photographs, even videos that have surfaced on it. So, I, I mean, I have no idea. I have no doubt whatsoever these things exist. And plus, I'm also very good friends with um, the former. International banker George Green, um, and <laughs> through his connections, I've met a number of people who go into great lengths about what they saw and experienced where they were in the underground bases. And I have no reason to believe that these people who are giving me first-hand accounts were actually lying about it. So yeah, that they, they exist. I mean, there's there's no question about it. I mean, uh, people can debate how many and <laughs> where and so forth. But no, these underground military these these dumbs actually do exist. And uh, like I said, Richard Sauter has done a good job of that. Would you say that power, it corrupts absolutely? Um, do these people really get a genuine joy from acting this way and suppressing the rest of us? Yeah, I, I, I go into enormous depth on that, enormous detail on uh, something in my book, The Joys of Psychopathocracy. Uh, that is essentially an essential characteristic of um, psychopathy. There are people in this world, and most of them are in high places of power, there are people in this world who genuinely, um, they generally get a thrill. They get a psychic thrill out of causing pain, agony, torture. These are the things they feed off of. They They really have sold their soul to the devil. They are basically at that point acting as... Um, substitutes or they're actually acting as incarnates for the archons. They feed off of this. The archons feed off of it and they in turn feed off of it. People don't realize what they do when they actually, when they actually do this thing where they actually, because this actually exists, you know, grinding your soul to the duck. It actually does exist. And people don't realize that when, when they do that, then they, they actually, there actually becomes this, Disconnect between the soul and, and, and their mind and body. There is actually and they be in a sense become a tool of pure evil, and that's basically what psychopathy is. A true psychopath really gets off on people, uh, you know, causing people's torment, and they feed off of it, and that's an actual psychic phenomenon. I tell you, if you take, when you take ayahuasca, you actually see it up close and personal. You actually, I mean, I've had instances. I've, I've. In ayahuasca journeys, I've encountered the angelic realm. I've encountered the uh, the realm of the archangels. I've in, I've also encountered demonic realms, and 
there is so many different layers, uncountable layers in the demonic realms and in the angelic realms and in the, in, in the, in the, uh, demonic realms. Yeah, this is a, this is a characteristic of evil. This is one of evil's characteristics. The joy of causing pain and suffering of others. Do you believe in black magic? Of course. What about this stuff about Pizzagate and children being taken and being abused by politicians and elites? Uh, do you believe that to be true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that um, it's interesting that when um, the uh, what is his name now? Martin. Father Malachi Martin. Oh, yeah. The old coast to coast yeah. guy. So oh, I'm a big fan of Big fan of his. Uh, rest in peace, of well, course. You, you, I mean, have you ever actually read? If you ever actually read Windswept House? No. Well, yeah, it's because the whole thing in there is sacrifice the child and they kill the dog, and and there the knife is being used in a way to cause as much agony and torture to the dog as possible. The whole whole ritual with the Pope present and everyone there from the Vatican is, you know, uh, honoring Lucifer by making this poor dog. Uh, so, you know, suffer as much as I mean. I just discuss, I, I never finished the book. I it burned my stomach so bad I couldn't handle it. Yes, this this is this is uh, this is central to the people that, that do this sort of thing. If you if you're connected to the dark realm and that's where you obtain your power, and your goal is to please the dark powers, then and they feed off of uh, you know this is their louche, if I may use the the term coined by the late. Robert um, Monroe, <laughs> then yes, this is this is what gives you pleasure as well. And so when you ask me about Pizza Gate and all that, yeah, th this thing of tormenting children and, and raping them and killing them, all this kind of thing, uh, I have no doubt that that this is a this is a common occurrence that there that there's many people at the very highest levels of the elite that live for it. Could there be uh, some connection here to? Aliens at all? Do you believe in aliens? Could there be aliens, even reptilian aliens, that are part of this conspiracy? I have a lay. I have this uh, thing I've created called Caton's Negaprosity Chart. It's pretty interesting. It actually categorizes everything within our society within this scale, going from the most a degree of unconditional love and reciprocity, from pure good to pure evil. And um, when you get to the realm of negative, recipro negative re reciprocity or negaprocity, uh, I go into the, all these different layers. And the very one that's very, that's just before you get to pure, pure, concentrated evil with no good whatsoever, there's a layer called the overlords. And I make the statement that I believe these overlords are basically these maleferent uh, extraterrestrial entities. Whatever, call them what you will, you know, reptile, reptilians, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a number of at the very top, but no, I, I I think that um, you know, David Ike talks about this a lot. I think they're on the money. I really do. I think they're on the money. And not only that, but when I have done ayahuasca journeys, I I do experience these reptiles, just horrible, horrible experiences. I mean, even in the ayahuasca state, I can smell them, and they stink to high hell. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's uh, so yeah, they they exist and. With enough entheogenic work to have the ability, you can actually encounter them, and it's it's not at all pleasant. 
could some plants and animals, and I'm talking about the positive ones, the ones that are medicines, that have healing powers, uh, is there a possibility that some of them may have been um, biologically engineered by some ancient aliens that arrived in the past and actually wanted to help humans or the planet? I suppose it's uh, possible. It's not something I've looked into at great length. Um, but we talked earlier about shifting timelines. There's other parallel universes that are behind us in time, and there are other parallel universes that are ahead of us in time. And, you know, we have a very rigid sense of time because we think we live in a universe when we really and truly live in a multiverse. So it's impossible. And another thing that puzzles me is this whole concept of Lucifer. I mean, I can say personally that I know what you're saying is true, Greg. I've talked to a to a high-level Freemason on this program, and he confirmed to me that, indeed, at the highest levels of Freemasonry, there, there is a Luciferianism, and uh, he didn't seem to think it was all that bad and encouraged me to look into it. But uh, what do you think about the idea that Lucifer or the devil could actually be a real being? Is he a real being, a real entity, or is this all just sort of philosophical? All right, <clears throat> let's do this. Let's have a little thought experiment. You know about the Bohemian Grove and all of that. You got all these beans that... Can you imagine the elite of the world creating these kind of get-togethers, be it Bohemian Grove or somewhere else, and they're all there to give homage and worship to Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse or some other fictitious... A uh, cartoon character that came out of the mind of Walt Disney or some other cartoon. No, you can't. They're going to do that. <laughs> They're going to worship something that's non-existing. So when you ask, so inherent in your question, you have to you have to consider with so much of these well-established doctrines going back to Aleister Crowley and God knows how many different statements for him. Because in my in my world, in terms of my experience, I'm using ayahuasca. Lucifer, Satan, it's the same mean. I know that Malachi might say that they're two separate entities. I don't believe it. I think it's, I think it's two aspects of the same being. If you ask me, do I believe this being actually exists, that he's an actual conscious being, an actual uh, uh, spiritual entity? Yeah, he absolutely is. Lucifer is an actual spiritual entity. And Lucifer and Satan are the same being. They can mince words and say, you know, different personality characteristics, but it's the embodiment of pure evil. And he does exist, and yes, these people do worship him and and kill and torture in his name to, to attempt to please him and, and all of that sort of thing. Look, when you have protocols that are this well-established in that world that have gone on for this long, if there wasn't some benefit to it, wouldn't they have stopped? Well, yeah, of course they would have. Nobody worships Donald Duck. Nobody worships Mickey Mouse. And why is that? Well, they don't exist. They're fictitious parts. Satan is not a fictitious cartoon character. He actually exists. He's an actual uh, being, an intelligent being, granted on the dark side, but he does actually exist. And although I have to say that, although I've encountered Archie, I've never actually had an, I thank God, I, I don't think I can handle it. I've never myself actually had an encounter with Lucifer. Never had that. I've encountered uh, Archangel Michael, Raphael, Ariel, Never encountered Lucifer. Really hope I never do. 
This is all incredibly fascinating. We are approaching the end of the interview, but Greg, I did want to go ahead and just open up things one more time and just give you an opportunity to go ahead and just say whatever you would like to say. If you want to get on the soapbox, that's perfectly fine. And feel free to go ahead and follow that up with anything at all that you would like to plug and promote on the program today. Well, that's that's very thoughtful of you. Uh, My bio page, if you were interested in my person, is com. That's G-R-E-G-C-A-T-O-N dot com. And my herbal work, um, for people living in North America, the the website is herbshealers.com. And that's H-E-R-B-H-E-A-L-E-R-S dot com. We do charge for our products. We do not charge for our medical consultations. We have two doctors that work for us that actually consult with the public and help them, guide them through, you know, their their health challenges, and again, we don't charge for products. A lot of things we recommend to people. They're not products we sell. We can't sell you anything uh, in a lot of instances, but we do try to help people with their problems based on our vast knowledge of naturopathy, herbalism, and other healing techniques that are multicultural and and, and as as it relates to the, the plants themselves, very steeped in the ethnobotany of our work. Anything else? No, that's pretty much it. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Well, uh, first thing I'd like to say to you is thank you so much for all of your hard work, everything you've been contributing to the the forces of good and light and and wisdom and and making this world a better place. So a big thank you for that. And, of course, thank you for coming on this program today. I think it was a great interview. I certainly learned a lot. I know my listeners will absolutely love it. And I would love to uh, touch bases with you again in the future and do it again. Great. Well, I appreciate it. I, I, Daniel, I was so thoughtful. Thank you for having me on. I enjoyed it very much myself. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, big shout out to Richard for connecting me with you and uh, very thankful for him for doing that. It ended up being a great time. And um, thank you again for coming on and uh, I will be in touch. Great. Thank you, Daniel. We'll talk shortly. Yeah, absolutely. You have a right. good rest of your day, my friend. Thank you. All right, Daniel. Bye. Bye-bye now. And there you have it. That was Greg Catton. Oh, my God. What a great interview. Um, So many ups and downs in the past two hours and 40 minutes. We lost him. We got him back. There was a bunch of times when I was just kind of sitting on air, getting frustrating and ranting towards the powers that be for shutting down this show. (laughs) And who knows what happened. Maybe I actually got through to somebody with my little... uh, uh, rant and angry little rant about not not shutting down what I have to say. Maybe they backed down a little bit, or maybe it was all just a big accident and a big coincidence and random. Who's really to say? There could be magic at work, like I alluded to earlier. It's really hard to say, but I'm glad we got him back on the line. That's what's really important. The hows and the whys aren't important. What's important is we got him back and we talked to him and had an outstanding interview. And I have plenty else to talk about. Um, I'm going to go ahead and take another break because I have to freshen up a bit, take a little break, and get ready for the second half of the show. I plan to go a little while 
um, especially to make up for that little bit of time that we missed earlier. So definitely want to put on a good show this time, a, a long show. So I will go ahead and put on some music, and then I'll go freshen up a bit, and I will be back with you in no time. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome back to the end of days. Ooh, oh. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest show ever. The greatest show in the history of all media, not just radio. This is End of Days Radio. I'm your host, Daniel, the rebel badass, the all-American man, the guy with the plan, the guy that will hopefully understand you and all of your idiosyncrasies and your uniqueness. I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be back in black, and I'm happy to be on track. I'm happy to be here to talk to you about all kinds of things. And, of course, one thing that I didn't want to talk about today was my trip yesterday to Comic-Con. No, not the big one over in San Diego, but the smaller one up here in Seattle. It's the Emerald City Comic-Con. And like I was saying before we got Greg back on the line, when I was a kid, I used to love comic books. I used to love going to the comic book store. I used to collect them. I used to read them. I even used to draw comic book characters. I used to love to draw them. You know, I'd do the best that I could. I was pretty good at drawing, and I even wanted to be a comic book artist when I was a kid. It didn't quite out turn out, <laughs> didn't quite turn out that way. I ended up being some kind of podcasting freak instead, but I do enjoy what I'm doing. But yesterday, I was able to go to Comic-Con for the first time ever. You know, I've heard about it for years and years, different people going and having a great time and talking about how cool it is, how amazing it is, how fun it is. Um, there's people that have told me that they go pretty much every year, like Comic-Con is a staple of their life. And at this point, I totally get it. I totally get it. I did not expect to have that much fun. Like, I expect it to be kind of a you know, a big room, but not with tons and tons of stuff, like some neat stuff to look at, but I'd probably get bored with it pretty quick. And, you know, it'd be like a quick novelty sort of thing, some quick, cheap fun that would wear off quickly. But that could not have been further from what actually happened. I was blown away almost immediately by the sheer size of the venue, how much stuff there was to look at, how fascinating it all was, how interesting uh, from the get-go, I was just bombarded by different sensory stimulation. I didn't even really buy anything. I didn't spend much money. I bought dinner later, but I didn't really even buy anything. Um, at this point, I'm kind of wishing that I would have, but I was just so overwhelmed. I just wanted to soak in the entire experience. And I can say I totally get it now. I get Comic-Con. I get why it's such a big thing. It's such a big fad, why, why it's catching on everywhere all across the country. And I want to go to the big one down in San Diego now. I know for sure I'm going to the one next year in Seattle again because it was really that cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm excited. It was cool. I did see a few celebrities. I saw Will Wheaton, who played Wesley on Star Trek The Next Generation, and he's played on so many other things. He was on that sci-fi show Eureka um, he was on uh, tons of stuff. Like, like, he's kind of one of those guys that shows up on 
a bunch of different things, like, randomly. Like, all of a sudden, you're watching your show, and Will Whedon pops up. You're like, oh, my God, it's Will Whedon, right? So it was cool seeing him. I saw him pretty up close. I just sort of walked by him. And whenever I see celebrities or famous people, I'm the biggest dork. I just sort of start smiling, and I can't stop, and I start turning all red and smiling, and I kind of stare at them. I probably make them feel very uncomfortable. Nobody else really does that. That's just something that I seem to do. I seem to just kind of stare, and hopefully I'm not creeping them out. But I did sort of stare at him for a little bit. I didn't want to, like, go up and bother him or try to talk to him or anything like that. I was content with just seeing somebody that's somewhat of a celebrity. (laughs) I also saw Billy Piper from the uh, show Doctor Who. Uh, She was also on Penny Dreadful and many, many other series. I saw her in real life. That was pretty cool. Again, I started smiling weirdly and staring at her. I I hope she didn't notice me doing that. But I haven't really seen a lot of celebrities, so it was cool. And uh, there were other people there that I was just kind of running into or coming across and people that I heard about later that I probably saw, but I didn't even realize they were supposed to be there. Saw some comic book artists. And, oh, my God, the fans, the people that are actually attending, that was probably the funnest part of all. All the different outfits that people were wearing, the different get-ups. I saw Deadpool, this guy that was – his costume looked just like Deadpool. For those of you who know who Deadpool is, have seen the movie, have read the comic, uh, this guy's costume was very well done. You could tell some serious time and energy went into this costume and and all the other ones, too, like – You can tell that these people's whole lives revolve around uh, making these awesome costumes and taking pictures and stuff like that. But what did kind of suck about that was there were signs that said you you should not take pictures of people without their permission. So that made me a little nervous. And I know I promised you guys I'd take all kinds of great pictures, but unfortunately the best picture I took was of some – old, fat, white, bald guys, and that was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, I didn't, I was so in awe of everything, I didn't have a second to muster up the balls to actually ask one of these people if I could take their picture. But next time I will, now that I've taken it all in, and I'll be more prepared next time. But I was seeing some things that were just blowing my mind, like, for example, how scantily clad some of these women were. I mean... Uh, when I was headed into the building, there were two girls standing out there and great bodies, just, uh, you know, skinny, but not totally grossly skinny, but, you know, real thin, um, tight bodies. And it almost looked like they were wearing this latex, this thin latex or paint. I mean, you could see every little crack and crevice of their bodies. It it was almost a little bit obscene. Like, they were as close to naked as you could possibly be, and they're just walking around like that. So, as a grown adult male, uh, you know, I'm walking through and observing all of these women in their scantily clad outfits, and I'm, I'm just taken aback. I'm, I'm uh, losing control of my animal tendencies. <laughs> that's the best way I can put it, without being too disgusting or coming off like a pervert. I just... Really, like, I'm thinking to myself, boy, this is kind of tough to uh, not get excited, to not uh, to not uh, become aroused because of what I was surrounded by. And there was this, uh, I saw Catwoman, I saw Ariel from the Little, the Little Mermaid, and they all looked 
fantastic. Like you could tell that these women, they know that they look great. So they're going to these things to show off their bodies and get noticed. And I have no problem with that. I think that that is fascinating. And all my friends and people that I know that aren't even into comic books, like the first thing they were asking me is like, oh, did you see any hot cosplay chicks? Why didn't you get any pictures of the hot cosplay chicks? I do apologize. I was not able to do that, but I did. I was there, and I did admire what was going on. I actually went outside for a second, and it blew me away because immediately I start smelling pot like everywhere. Like the whole outside of the building smells like pot. <laughs> maybe because it's legal up here, or maybe comic book nerds love to get baked. I don't know what it was, but I went outside, and I'm just like, I'm just, I just enter into this fog of pot smell this dank weed and i'm walking along and i i see this this woman she's dressed like psylocke from the x-men psylocke is this character that wears like this blue one piece one piece bathing suit and she's just wearing like this little thong the bottom of it is just this skinny little thong and I mean, I, I just walk right into that. There's some kind of photo shoot going on. I'm just like, oh, my God, what? Oh, my God. And I had to go inside because I was just so taken aback and so amazed at what I was seeing and the fact that these women would walk around in such scantily clad outfits. And, and she wasn't ugly either. She looked great. I mean, I'm talking like these women look like models. And I, I just couldn't believe it. <laughs> I'm probably going on a little bit too much about this. Um, so that's immediately the first thing that stuck out to me and probably a lot of people's favorite reason for going to Comic-Con. And I, I very much encourage you to check one out if there's one in your area. Um, you absolutely will not be disappointed. I noticed there was a lot of upcoming stuff, like um, upcoming board games, upcoming card games, dice games, comic book series and what was cool was there would be a booth with a new comic book series and the writer and creator and or artist would be there sitting there promoting and selling people on their work which i found to be very interesting i mean as somebody that has my own thing and i i use my imagination to create something i have so much respect for that the up up and coming starters that are trying to use their imagination to create an entire world and get something truly special and magical off the ground. I have so much respect for that. And there's tons of stuff for sale, too. There's just, oh, my God, uh, comic books. There would be a booth there, and somebody would have, like, five or six copies of a super rare comic in just perfect condition. And you're wondering, how the hell did that guy get all of those? And they have the rating system and all of that. And there's toys. Uh, there's costumes you can buy. Steampunk, steampunk stuff. There's a whole section dedicated to um, new upcoming unreleased games for the Nintendo Switch. That was pretty cool. I didn't really have too much time to check that out. Uh, the Doctor from Back to the Future was there. I, I tried to see him, but um, you had to pay to get a picture taken with him. <laughs> I kind of wish at this point that I would have paid for a picture with somebody because I went all the way out there, and that probably would have been pretty cool. A lot of anime stuff, a lot of Dragon Ball Dragon Ball stuff. You guys know that I'm a huge fan of Dragon Ball. Uh, they had these mystery boxes where you would buy a box, and you'd 
don't know what's in it, but it's like 40 bucks and it's full of like random Dragon Ball toys. And I almost bought one of those, but I just did not want to be walking around with that. I was a little too self-conscious to be walking around with this big box that has Goku and the Dragon Ball characters on it and walking around like I'm holding this big Happy Meal. I I was a little bit too self-conscious, but I should have just done it. I should have done that. I should have tried to talk to more people. I should have got in there more. I should have taken pictures. But like I said, I was just so in awe and having so much fun that next thing I knew, I was out of time and I had to go home. But, oh, my God, that was so fun. So fun. And, <laughs> and one of the funniest parts was, I'm so there's like six levels, and I'm going up the escalator, and this whole group of Star Wars nerds, they're like completely blocking the escalator because they're all lining up for a photo. They're all dressed like Jedi, like they've got the hoods on and the robes, and they've got these really cool, realistic-looking lightsabers. Like, these aren't the ones that were around, like, you know, 20 years ago where uh, the toy lightsabers, they looked really fake, the lights weren't very bright, uh, they looked like cheap, junky toys that didn't even look like real lightsabers. These new ones, these new ones actually somehow look like real lightsabers. I'm sure some of you have seen them on Amazon or on YouTube or whatever, but they actually look like real lightsabers. I I imagine they're probably using LED lights to make them really bright and, um, you know, making sure that they look like high-quality replicas and and, uh, using some kind of technology to really make them look real. But there was like six or seven of these people, all grown adults. I think they were like a family. I think there was like two or three kids mixed in there too. And they're all lining up for a picture, and they're all posing like they're a bunch of Jedis just about to jump in a battle. <laughs> and I was just cracking up because these people looked like they're having so much fun. And, you know, you would think that they're actually real Jedi. They're getting so much into it. <laughs> but just something that made me laugh and, and made me smile. And, um, you know, I definitely want to go back there. Just the whole thing was so positive. Everybody was so nice. There, there weren't a bunch of assholes there. It was just, you know, mostly a bunch of nerdy people that are into board games and comic books and stuff like that. And there's a whole there was a whole section for writers, uh, up-and-coming writers, people trying to promote their books and stuff like that, fantasy stuff. Uh, there's even a virtual reality set up there. You know, it just goes on and on and on. And I'm definitely going back next year. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to get involved a little bit more. But I totally get it. Comic-Con is the shit. Oh, my God, it is so fun. And afterwards, I had a blast, too, because me and the friends I, I was with, we actually went down to Chinatown. And we ate at a very specific place. It's called Ping's. And I'm going to give a shout-out to Ping's down in Chinatown, the International District in Seattle. Oh, my God, some of the best dumplings and soup and pot stickers and chow mein. I mean, this was real authentic Chinese food. It wasn't the cheap sort of fast food, Americanized Chinese food you see out there. This was, like, real delicious Chinese food. And, oh, my God, the flavors and the textures that was hitting my mouth. I've never had food like that before. I've never had... Um, you know, authentic Chinese dumpling, wonton sort of soup, dim sum and stuff like that. I've never had it. And my mind is blown, the the new palette of sensations. And it was just a really cool little area. They had a old 
retro video game store. I think it's called Pink Gorilla. That's really cool that you should check out. And there was a Kung Fu school right next to the place. And there was, like, pictures of Bruce Lee and a bunch of old Chinese swords and stuff like that. Just really a fun time. Had tons of fun at Comic-Con. Had tons of fun eating at the Chinese restaurant. And that's how you do it. That's how you do it. You just plan things out that you know are going to be fun for you. Uh, fun, exciting experiences. I think they can really raise your vibration and, and get you out of being stuck in the mud if you're feeling a funk or anything like that. Plan something fun out that you know that you'll enjoy, um, You know, something that you can enjoy with others. I, I highly recommend it. So big shout-out to Comic-Con, Emerald City Comic-Con, and shout-out to Ping's Dumpling, Dumplings, I think that's what it's called, in the uh, International District in Seattle. <laughs> And that is that. Definitely going to go back next year. If anybody would like to attend Comic-Con with me in Seattle next year, uh, you know, hit me up, DanielEndOfDaysRadio at gmail.com. You can connect with me through social media. Maybe we can uh, organize a little group to all go up there together if any of you are interested. <clears throat> okay, so I'll stop boring you guys with the comic book talk. I, know, I can just sense it. My psychic powers are tingling. I can sense some of you bitching and moaning and getting all out of sorts. Oh, this is boring. Why is he talking about this? No, I don't like it. I don't like it. Oh, somebody's calling. Hello. What's going on, Daniel? Hey there, buddy. How are you? I'm doing awesome. How are you today? Oh, I'm so good. Killer show. Wow. Classic end of days. Yeah, it is going quite well. I was a little bit worried earlier a couple hours ago because I was wondering if we were going to be able to get our guests back and I'd have to carry the whole show on my own and I was getting a little bummed out, but it seems that we are indeed back on track. We are back in the day. Yeah, my, my, I lost your signal there. I was listening to you on TuneIn. That's how I usually get you. Oh, okay. And uh, I lost your signal there for a portion when you lost the guest. Oh, really? And so I missed, yeah, I missed where where the guest came back on, but I but I picked it back up not too far into probably after you'd gotten back a hold of him. How long did it take you to get back a hold of him? Uh, not too long. I don't know. We were... We were out of business probably for about 20, 30 minutes, and the whole time yeah. I was just whining and complaining about it. I mean, as you know, uh, this show has been shut down before, or we think it's been shut down. It just seems to happen when we have these serious guests that have the documented evidence that um, you know have a history of getting uh, harassed or accused or imprisoned. It seems to always happen at those times. Yeah, your guest Greg's story was just incredible. Wow, this guy's so so smart, so uh, studied. Yeah, I really a lot of valuable information in there. Yeah, I really love it because everything he was talking about is stuff that's very important to me personally. Uh, you know, saving the environment, um, cleaning up our diets, and cleaning up our bodies. Um, you know, the, the psychic abilities and proving to the world out there that this stuff is indeed real. It's not just comic book. It's not just um, sci-fi. That there, there is indeed real 
real psychic ability out there that some people indeed, um, you know, they have a talent at or they're able to um, use it to a greater degree than others. It, it, there does seem to be some yeah. major truth here. Totally, totally. Boy, one of the most powerful guests I've heard on your show in a while. Really powerful. Please have him on again. It, yeah, absolutely. We kind of, uh, you know, we try to... It's tried to experiment a little bit, brought brought some stand-up comedians on the show, and uh, I do intend to keep things a little bit open and try out different guests and different topics. We don't always have to be talking about, um, you know, paranormal or doom and gloom or conspiracy or, or that sort of stuff all the time, but at the same time, I do realize that my listeners out there have an appetite for this stuff, and uh, they, they, yeah, an appetite, a true hunger for um, this sort of information, because the people out there listening to this show, they're all a bunch of rebels themselves, and, and, and they want this information, and they want to be empowered by it, uh, because there aren't a whole lot of ways to figure out what's really going on. If you want to know, you have to really delve into Google and, and start researching stuff, and it's hard to tell uh, you know, what's misinformation, what's disinfo, what you should actually pay attention to. Totally, totally. That's the most difficult part. But but start out, I mean, every, everybody, everybody start out realizing that any of this could just be total fiction. I mean, parts parts of it. Like the conspiracy history, though, um, you know, Greg mentioned that he'd found that book, The Unseen Hand, by Ralph Epperson. I have that book. I, I got it back in the early 90s. Man, it's intense. It's, it's, it's about 800 pages thick, and it reads like the Bible of conspiracies, devotes a chapter to pretty much every any subject you could bring up. You know, Rothschilds, Rockefellers, Illuminati, Skull and Bones, you know, had everything in there. And history, it did little brief snippets, you know, where, where it relates to his, uh, Ralph Epperson's The Unseen Hand. Um, still, you know, from a Christian bent, Daniel, though, Ralph Epperson, a lot of the conspiracy books, potent ones back then, they, they had conspiracy, or they had Christian, Christian authors or Christian belief systems behind them. And that's, that's cool. But so many back then, Daniel, that that almost seemed like a psyop, the the Christian conspiracy books. Uh, Yeah, you know, this is my theory, Todd, on how this stuff works is um, when you have something like this bubble up and um, make itself known to society or, uh, you know, the collective, um, sometimes when you have something like this come out, well, these these elitist um these governments the people in power a lot of times they'll exaggerate things and they'll attribute more to it than is actually there because they want to distract you uh they want to misdirect oh, yeah. you so they'll um you know they'll put a swerve on it or they'll have somebody go out there that that uh tries to get you to focus on one thing and and keep your eye off of certain other issues um it, it really seems to be how they work and i don't know if there is something like that to do with christianity i'm sure many people would argue that christianity itself is a psyop that it's a form of mind control uh but that doesn't rule out the possibility that um there is indeed genuine spiritual knowledge inside of the bible and there could be some truth even to the book of revelations yeah, yeah. I was going to mention Sun Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, and his book, The Art of War. If uh, 
if you if you look around you, you know, society is is getting pretty intense right now. And and if you want to be a warrior, not just a physical warrior, but a spiritual or metaphysical warrior, then you should at least look into military philosophy and some of the earliest origins, you know, go to China with, with Sun Tzu's book, Art of War. And it's one of the most famous books, Daniel, because he, he uses, uh, you know, not proverbs, but parables or whatever to try to, try to explain in parts how to, how to fight. And some of the most valuable stuff in there is philosophy about going to battle when you're getting ready to go to battle. And one of the principles that he lays out pretty clearly for you is that the best way to win a war is to not fight one to start. So just going to war increases the chances that you might lose or die or get physically injured, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to... You want to, uh, the best way to go to war is not to go to war. I mean, if you don't have to, don't do it. But if you have to, then start realizing some basic principles like, like, if you're fighting a big opponent, you know, start with your philosophy. If your opponent's bigger than you and you're smaller, then you're more ad- agile, adept. See your strengths and see his weaknesses. The, Bigger ones fall harder, right? That's the old saying. Um, other things like um, present yourself bigger than you are if you can, right? Don't ever meet the guy on the battlefield. Scare him to death so that he never comes to battle. And that's what a lot of these intelligence agencies and stuff understand too, is they create an image of themselves that's unbeatable. Right. Yeah, that's like the very Illuminati. True, yeah. yeah, they they almost uh, make us think that we have no chance in hell because they have the money, they have the weapons, they have control, they have the authority. They they seem to have everything. So then you start going back into okay, where's their weaknesses? What their weaknesses are? Just look at it. They're a bureaucracy. They're a top-down pyramid organization. Information and orders flow slower through such a giant structure, right? Yeah. Individual cells move faster than a gigantic monolithic that has lots of little arms that can come out and get you, but still they got to get the papers down from the 10 agencies before the, you know. Um, And so start changing your own philosophy because like Vietnam, how did the Vietnamese hold off the most powerful country on earth? They were already practicing guerrilla warfare before we got there against the French for 20 years. France tried to take Vietnam before we went there. Yeah, that's something you don't hear very much about. That uh, you know, nothing against them, of course, but it was actually the French that uh, got us into the whole mess. Yeah, and we have the military-industrial complex that can't wait to build helicopters and, you know, giant industry. Yeah, they they turned it into um, a whole uh, uh, communism versus democracy thing. 
Yeah, they're dominoes. If we don't stop them here, the countries will keep falling. The one thing they don't never tell you about was the Western powers, the Western industrialists built the communists, gave them all the guns and all the money. The commies wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the wealthy Western industrialists, and that's all thoroughly documented. Oh, you're talking about the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, you have all the, well, you got the Bolshevik Revolution, for sure, and um, how they gave Stalin, not Stalin, uh, the first one, the first one that they, Lenin. Lenin, okay. How they gave Lenin 50 million dollars in gold and put him on a train and that went through war-torn Germany. They made sure that places that you couldn't even go through, it was battle was so heavy that that train got through with Lenin and the gold and the Bolshevik Revolution, yeah. And over in the United States, you had the industrialist Brown Brothers Harriman and all these giant companies, the Rockefellers, all the biggest corporations in the United States. They were um, financing and and contributing in the early days to to Russia and the the, the system over there. That that wouldn't have stood up the Bolshevik Revolution if we hadn't have assisted them. Uh, At the you, highest levels, are industrialists. Uh, yeah, the, no doubt about that. And um, um, forgive me for saying this, but. Um, that one of history's uh, biggest villains, Hitler, he was actually trying to point some of this stuff out um, during the war. Uh, not to say that I admire him at all or anything like that. Of course not. He's a very evil man, a fascist dictator and, and totally racist, of course. But um, he was trying to point out what was going on, that there was this big revolution happening and the Western powers were funding it. Pretty much what you're saying. Yeah, he was being financed by the exact same people that were financing the Bolsheviks. And it's all thoroughly documented. Gigantic books. Yeah, the, Ro- would the Rothschilds. Your average person out of their minds reading them, but I read them. The Rothschilds, right? Oh, oh yeah, they're the old, they're old, old line, right? Money European families. But the United States has its old line money families that go back to the very beginning. If you go look at Skull and Bones and their history, you'll understand how our our sort of original deep state, where it was, and who they were, because the original, if if you look at the history of Skull and Bones, they were formed in 1833 by a company called um, the Russell Trust Organization, and they were in Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, that's where Yale University is. And the, the company was involved in, in um, ships. Daniel, they were into shipping in the United States. And they took over where the British East India Trading Company left off. That's an English company that was dealing all the world's heroin. So they had a shipping business before they became a, a, an elite fraternity at the campus of Yale University. And they were the globalists. They were the old globalists. They were connected to the, the old mine money families, almost diametrically opposed to our to what our system stood for in those days. 
And they were involved with funding the Nazis a little bit too, weren't they? Well, yeah, George Bush, George Bush Sr.'s father, Prescott Bush, was the first Skull and Bones member uh, of the Bush family. And he was in the 1900s when he was in Skull and Bones. And he had letters going back and forth between the Fuhrer about how they were supporting his cause and behind him all the way. Yeah, there was a lot of the Western uh, Ford, Henry Ford, had a picture of Hitler behind him in his office. He um, was a great admirer, had letters from Hitler. Hitler loved what Ford was doing over here. Yeah, kind so, of strange yeah, the, how how everything changed after the war, whereas before the end of the war, there were all these Americans that were in support of Hitler and even gave him money, and there was a whole uh, you know movement that many people are not aware of. And then as soon as the war is over, all of a sudden Hitler is uh, the devil, basically. Yeah, and then we're told that he was killed. He killed himself, right, Daniel? Yeah took cyanide, um, where there's all this information to support that they just smuggled him down to South America, probably. Mm-hmm. Him and all his yeah. top mm-hmm. headmen, where they lived out their lives down there, and they continued their genetic experiments that they were involved in. And now look around at the United States, all the technology and genes and splicing, and wow, all of a sudden, we've been involved in this since World War II, and look at the advancements, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. Uh, well, then they brought the Nazis over. Yeah, the, the ones that weren't, uh, you know, didn't have the big names, they just brought directly into the country, and then the ones that were too well-known, they hid them down in South America, in Brazil, and in, in the case of uh, Mengula, you know, one of the worst of the worst, he actually was yeah. being hunted and tracked by the Israeli Mossad, and they found him, and all of a sudden they changed their mind. They decided not to go grab him and kill him. Uh, you know, when these people would have every reason to and every right to, they decided not to do it. It really makes you wonder if they received word somehow that they needed to leave him alone. Oh, yeah. Plus, he still had a lot of followers after the war. People that never gave up on the dream of the Third Reich. And there's still people there like were, that around. There's still people like that. There were stay-behind groups that were left in Europe. They, um, the whole thing is convoluted. Americans don't hardly get any of this history unless you're a nerd that digs in deep into the, the background behind this. Unless you listen to End of Days Radio. Ah, yeah. End of Days. Oh, ah, yeah. nah, nah. Get your feel. Oh, I love it. Yeah. The Broken Ruins. Oh, yeah. So good. Man, you got a killer show, dude. I, I just got to tell you, I love it. Um, Comic-Con sounded funner than hell. Oh, yeah. I had a great time. I did not, you know, once again, I did not even expect to have anywhere remote close to as much fun as I ended up having. That is really something special. Um, you know, it's once a year, and um, it completely breaks the boring, doldrum pace of life. You know, when you get set into the flow of things and you're doing the same thing every day, you know, you mix it up by going to a convention or, or a Comic-Con, and it's very refreshing. I've never been to Comic-Con I drove by the billboards here in Salt Lake many times and looked at the 
ads for it and went, God, that would, that would probably be pretty fucking cool to see all these people, you know, all the yeah, and, stars. Yeah, and you, and you in particular would really enjoy it, Todd, because uh, you're an artist, and there's a whole floor just dedicated to, like, up-and-coming artists, and they've got all their work oh, out yeah. on display, so you could just walk through there and just take in all of the sensory overload. Well, the uh, no, I'm, I'm going to do that. It's, uh, no, I, I do want to see that one day. I'll put that on my bucket list. You know what, though? It's, it's hard I, to actually make yeah. it out there unless you have people to go with. So uh, maybe when I finally make my way down there, that's something that we should do, go go up to a Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. You know, Salt Lake is like the major you know city in, in Utah, like Seattle, but the, the wannabe version. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's got its own, <laughs> own things that make it special. <laughs> Oh yeah, how can you see the temple? Take the tour. <laughs> um, it's pretty, it'll blow your mind. They got a giant Jesus in there. That's like thirty feet high. Oh my they, god! Uh, come, yo, come see the tour because they got this building. The Mormons have a lot of money, and they got this building in Salt Lake is their headquarters. That's the temple. It looks like something uh, Solomon built. I think they. You know, borrowed some of the designs on Solomon's temple for their temple. They've got gardens on the top of the building, Daniel. That's gigantic. That blow your mind. Oh, all that stuff is top. all that stuff is linked back to Freemasonry. And as you know, Freemasonry yeah. is very uh, Hebrew in its uh, ways. Yeah, totally. Um, Joseph Smith joined the Masons in Missouri. And then the Masons, the local Masons, drove him out because he was a polygamist. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he was, <laughs> yeah, they chased him out of town. They're like, Joseph, Joseph Smith, Smith you, are, you are a dirty bastard. We do not have any patience like for you wives. and your perverted orgies ah. and your three ways. <laughs> and, um, you know, as the prophet, you pretty much pick, I think. He's like, I'm inventing this Which religion, like? and this religion says that I can have four or five women. It's the perfect religion. Oh. Well, they justified it. They justified it saying that uh, life in the old frontier was really hard, and a lot of men died, and there was a lot of women left over with no husbands. <laughs> oh, isn't so that rather than leave them, rather than leave them, you know, all by their lonesome. Polygamy allowed them to take in more wives and give those lonely women a a chance to have a husband and a wife, you know. So some of the ugly ones, they just cooked and cleaned, right? <laughs> uh, no, I just... Oh, my God. Todd, how could you? I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to go into that. You're adopting my dark humor now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, after Joseph Smith got killed... Because that's how the Mormon, that's the early Mormon history. The town formed a mob and went and got Joseph Smith back in Missouri. He put him in a jail cell. And they were outside with pitchforks and uh, kill him. And he, he had a couple of his followers sneak in. And they snuck him a gun into the jail cell. And... The mob was gonna was coming, and they did. The mob stormed the freaking off sheriff's office or whatever it was, pulled him out. And he shot a couple of them as they were rushing into the cell, and then they threw him out the window of the building. 
and uh, impaled him or whatever. So they they went inside and they grabbed him and then they they didn't even take him out the door. They tossed him out the window. Yeah. Oh, that's rude. Yeah. And so then that Mormon history starts. That sounds like pro wrestling. Yeah. He's like, smash. He landed on one of those sharp fences. Yeah. No, I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how exactly all the details were, but. And then uh, what happened was the, the next leader of the church had to get out of town and take everybody with him. And they went west, and that was Brigham Young. And Brigham Young made it to Salt Lake, came over the mountains, horrible pass, to try and even get west. Up in Salt Lake, we're at a high altitude, so we're part of the Rocky Mountains. And when he got into the Salt Lake Valley, he said, this is the place. And that's our, our state, our, our state's uh, motto. This is the place. Because Joseph Smith said that. Mm. Brigham Young, I mean. Brigham Young, pardon me. And then, so Brigham Young, I think, Daniel, he had 28 wives at the height. 28? I think so. That's like a harem. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they were all cosplay girls. Well, all dressed in pioneer clothes. Oh, that's hot. Um, It could be, I guess. Oh, yeah. Some of those dresses on... are. <laughs> but uh, not to get too far off track, there might be one other thing of interest there. Um, the the uh, federal government, when the Mormons got to Utah, they claimed a, site, they claimed a state that was that encompassed Nevada, Arizona, and Utah, and they called it Deseret. Did you know that? No. There was this gigantic place called Deseret because the Mormons got here in the 1850s, and and they claimed this big chunk of land, and they were polygamous. And so the federal government that was against polygamy went to war against the Mormons, some of those Mormons went to Mexico to avoid getting arrested and um, by the federal government. The federal government came in with army troops and told the, Mex- uh, the, the Mormons, you're going to drop polygamy and this is what your state is going to look like. And they reduced the size of the state the Mormons had claimed down to the shape you see today. The Mormons that stayed and formed the church, which today is known as the Latter-day Church of Jesus Christ. Um, they uh, they have the official religion, and there, there's all these offshoots, Daniel, that are still in the polygamy that you hear about that went to other places and still practice polygamy today. There's places in Utah where there's polygamous uh, cult, not cult, <laughs> cult <laughs> camps <laughs> of people. Yeah, that's uh you know, it's it's a little strange of course, but I'm of the belief that people, you know, I'm I'm no huge fan of the Mormon church, but it's still my belief that people should be able to live in whatever arrangements arrangements they choose, so long as they're consensual. If women, if there's women out there that actually want to indulge in something that sounds kind of shitty for them, to be quite honest, then that's their choice. And it's not the government's job to step in and tell you how to live your life. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Did you ever see that TV show, Big Love? 
<laughs> I heard about it. I never actually watched it. It was good. Bill Paxton was the lead lead character that had three wives and just kind of based it on modern day. What what really happens around here? They've got polygamous families here. They're some of the wealthiest families in this state. You know what's they funny, Todd? Businesses. You know what's funny is for the first time yesterday, um, I, get they, I guess they have them at the convention center, but... For the first time, I actually ran into the, uh, I guess they they were originally called transgender bathrooms, but I guess they're called genderless bathrooms now. So there, there were three bathrooms. Oh, really? Like one in the middle that's for whatever? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they just call it genderless bathroom. And while I was sitting there waiting for one of my friends to do a photo shoot, um, this this middle-aged lady, she walks up to the bathroom, and, and it was hilarious because she just did not know what the hell was going on, and she was so confused. And one of the younger people that was sitting around there, she explained to her what was going on, and the lady just kind of turned around like she was so confused and just walked away. It was kind of funny. Whoa, yeah, it sounds funny. Wow. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of, that's kind of a weird topic because, you know, They've got them here in certain buildings, like hospitals. I think they've formed them, and I think they they don't they don't say transgender or genderless or whatever. They say like family restroom, which means anybody can go in. You know, they show a little stick figure of male, female, and a kid <laughs> on the sign. I yeah, th- those are the bathrooms that you change the kid's diaper in. <laughs> yeah, those that have got the diaper stand. Yeah. But but it's just it's amazing to me, um, you know. It, it, I suppose one of the things that's nice about Seattle is that people are very open minded and very progressive. But I mean, I, I guess I'm old fashioned because I see stuff like that and it just blows my mind. I mean, three bathrooms. You don't want to walk in there and see if there's a guy or a girl. Is it like a multi multi use bathroom or? Five people could go in. I, I have no idea. I wasn't going anywhere near that. You there. didn't go in? Well, you should have went in. You should gave us a report. <laughs> Maybe you're right. That would have been good radio. What? <laughs> My first time in, in a genderless bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> go in and there's another guy that looks just like you in there. <laughs> yeah, a big old buff guy with a beard wearing a dress. Well, I've seen those guys once or twice. Yeah, I, I saw one at Comic Con. This dude that was like taller than me and a lot more muscular. He just he looked like Conan the Barbarian. He he's got a beard and he's wearing this oh. red dress. He's all fixed up like a princess. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. I'm I'm but I'm I'm like you, Daniel. I'm a libertarian. People should if you're not hurting somebody, you should be able to do whatever the hell you want. That's kind of my, you know philosophy. Oh, yeah, I, I totally um, agree. I mean, people can't help who they are. There's always going to be misfits out there and people that choose a different life, and, and we should cherish them and treasure them and not uh, not suppress them <coughs> or, or make them feel bad for just being who they are. It's the same thing your guest was talking about earlier, how these governments want to regulate and control every single facet based upon a political system that's being motivated by special interest groups, you know? Yeah, yeah, and there's um, there's a lot of agendas out there, and, um, you know, what we think of as the Illuminati or the powers that be, they don't always get along with each other. They, they have wars between themselves. Oh, yeah, they keep them compartmentalized, too. 
yeah, exactly. underlings. Yeah, and that's and, that's very smart, and that goes back to what you were talking about earlier about the art of war and keeping the single cells separated and making sure that um, you know if one section gets caught, it doesn't destroy the whole pyramid. And two people wouldn't be able to tell each other, you know, make sense of anything that they were involved in, right? Yeah. Hey, hey Todd, when they were. You want to do a news yeah. story? Oh, totally. I was hoping I'd catch you during the news section. Yeah. Okay. Let's see here. So this comes from, uh, who cares where it comes from? It says, lawmakers agree to destroy site of school carnage. The building has to come down. It says that yeah. Florida legis- legislature said Thursday they will provide the resources to help the Broward School District tear down Building 12, the site of the massacre that killed 17 students and teachers. They want to build a new classroom space and replace the site of the murders with a memorial to honor the victims and their families. This building has to come down, says Senator Bill Galvano. And, Todd, I can't help but think that this is very similar to Sandy Hook, where they tore the building down and um, completely decimated it very quickly. Yeah, and I know where that that, that news story comes from, and I think it's Miami Herald. If I'm not mistaken, it's it's a local paper from Florida. Because you never see that story in the national news. Oh, and yeah, you're right. I, I see out. the reference. It does say Miami Herald. I, I see where they have the source now in these news articles. It, you're completely right. MiamiHerald.com. Yeah, and that's an important thing to take into consideration when you're reading that story. Because that story is not a national story. That is a local story. And it came out three days after the event. Which shows you, Daniel, if they want something to happen, it happens like a lightning flash. <laughs> Fucking whole world changes immediately, right? Yep. Yeah, they, they have the money. For and the resources. good of the people, it can never quite get through. It never passes. It never gets fixed or solved. You see how that works? The slow progression of uh, unrelenting crap that beats all of us down. And then the lightning speed that if they want it to happen, it's like, this building's coming down. <laughs> and they're not telling you, they're not telling you that story nationally. That story's only being reported locally because those local politicians are moving to have that building destroyed. And they wrecked, uh, they demolished Sandy Hook or put a fence around it or something, we've been told, right? Yeah, they completely demolished it down to rubble, completely uh, destroyed any sort of evidence that could possibly be found in the future. Uh, nobody can go in there and measure the blood splatter. Nobody can search for DNA. Nobody can... See the bullet holes, what yeah. direction they're coming from. Yeah, they're yeah. finished already? They're good. finished already? They already figured it all out? That seems kind of quick. Oh, I know. They've got the killer. Let me tell you what that reminded me of. You remember Lee Harvey Oswald? Oh, yeah. After the shooting, they didn't get him immediately. He went to him. He went calmly, left work supposedly, walked out of the building and was walking down the street, going to a movie theater. And they said a cop tried to pull him over and he shot a police officer, killed him, and then he kept on his way, going to the movie theater. And they knew right what movie theater was in. Because they, you know, the the press was already heard it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Every police officer in the city was hunting for Lee Harvey Oswald. 
And then there he is, right at the movie theater. You know, 20 police come in. He's there. There he is. <laughs> they get him, Daniel, and they'll never let this happen again. They Reporters are going, why did you shoot the president? He's like, I didn't shoot anybody. I don't even know what I'm being accused of. I'm a patsy. Right? They'll never let that happen again. He says, I didn't shoot anybody. And so they hold him in the Dallas police station, and then they walk him out where Jack Ruby, the mob, the, the low-level mob guy, is in the parking lot downstairs in the police station because the police officer let him in, and he kills, he kills Oswald before he can ever be tried. Case closed. He's our man. People didn't quite buy it, so they did the Warren Commission, which was filled with people from the CIA, Daniel, that Kennedy had fired. Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, he was skull and bones. Sat on the Warren Commission, overseeing the, the thing that painted Oswald as the, the killer. Yeah, you really have to ask yourself what's going on when the supposed assassin suddenly ends up dead himself. Immediately. What they do now if the assassin survives, they're drugged up when they go to court. Oh, yeah. The, the one, they put them on so many drugs, Daniel, they can't even speak, let alone see straight. Like that James um, Holmes. James Holmes, the, the Batman shooter. And there was um, all kinds of, of stuff this. that came out later about him and his father and being linked to actual research on mind-controlled drugs. Very scary stuff. Yeah. They were testing products. They had an energy drink kind of thing that he was part of their study on James Holmes. If you read the newspapers after the Batman shooting, they had diagrams in my local newspaper, the Salt Lake Tribune, of how he had rigged his apartment with all these explosives and they showed this diagram of how complex he'd wired his apartment in case you come in. Did you see any of that? Uh, no, I, I did not uh, get that into it, but that's really scary. Yeah, they had diagrams where he ran wires. I mean, it must have been hundreds of them to certain chemicals that would blow if you went, came through the door, didn't know how to deactivate the triple arm. So they sent SWAT in and they they um, wrote down all the stuff, documented it, put it in our newspaper. But it reminds me, Daniel, of the new guy, Cruz, the, late, the latest from the Parkland shooting. He, witnesses that were live the day of the shooting said they were walking with him home. Down the street, he always goes to go home. And on Alex Jones' show, they had a girl the day after or the day of that said, I was walking with him. And I said, this sounds like something you would do. And he looked at me funny and kind of walked off. So she was with him and didn't, it sounded like she didn't think he was the one that did it. And I'll tell you what I heard this morning on our local talk radio that's of interest. There's a teacher now in the school that's a witness that said she looked out the door and there was a guy dressed in black military fatigues with a face mask on and shooting a gun so she couldn't identify who it was. So something's being covered up there. That's a 
Yeah, That's a huge style. Yeah. And, and that leads us into our next news story. This one coming from the DailyMail.co.uk, and it says that school gunman Nicholas Cruz, 19, faces 17 counts of premeditated murder charges that carry the death penalty in Florida and is held without bail. Uh, he told authorities that voices in his head told him how to carry out the shooting. According to his legal team, he suffers from autism, depression, and has other psychological disorders. The voices were described as demons by law enforcement sources, reports ABC News. What do you make of that? How strange. Um, and then add to it, when he turned 18, they turned him away from mental health care that he'd been receiving for years. His mom died in October. So he's severely depressed and on a ton of medication. There were 39 calls to the police department about him. Somebody even got on, took a, took a screenshot off Facebook and posed, sent it to the FBI or whatever, saying this guy's going to do a school shooting. And then he was calling himself on, on his online profile, a profesh, um, professional school shooter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. Did you know that was his profile? No. <laughs> I think that, you had a picture God, of him over again yeah. going, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. They sent just... videos to the FBI of him cutting himself going, I'm going to kill somebody soon. Um, That's all too much. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, you know, it really makes me wonder because we've had um, guests on this program, um, one in particular, um, Oh, God, the name is just <laughs> on the tip of my tongue. What was he talking about? Um, Robert, talking about? Uh, Robert, what's his last name? Robert. Uh, Emily? No. Um, Emily? Author of Astral Dynamics. Robert Bruce. I'm so sorry it took me so oh, long. Robert to... Bruce, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, he tell, told the story on the show, um, you know, the the old, old show with Michael, The uh, you know, years and years ago, he came on, he was telling us about, um, when he became possessed, and basically, as soon as it happened, he was overcome with this urge to basically go out and kill people. And it really makes yeah. you wonder if maybe there was some sort of um, a case of entities possessing this young man or influencing him in some way, or it could even be something different where... Um, perhaps some technology was being used to, to direct him because um, that's another thing that you see in some of this conspiracy research is they say that uh, the powers that be, they actually use technology to fake uh, demonic voices or uh, voices of religious figures inside of the mind. They can actually remote influence a person using technology and direct them or um, even harass them to the point where they go completely crazy and they, they can't stand their, their own own, uh, you know, daily thoughts. You know, that's almost kind of the spookiest part of the, the AI that they built using our tax dollars around us, is if they're sitting there watching you and spying on you, then they know what you believe, what you think, right? They know your deepest, most secret moments where you're alone. They know what you think. So if they have that kind of information, Daniel, they could do a targeted attack on you using your own belief systems to scare the shit out of you or make you do things like hear voices. 
One of the spookiest stories I heard, and I don't know how real this is, it sounds more like PSYOP. Do you remember the guy that was a conspiracy researcher we talked about a long time ago where they found him, where he had black goo coming out of him? Oh, um, b- b- boy, what was his name? Oh, God, it, it's hard uh, to remember almost... sometimes. <laughs> oh. But his girlfriend or mom said, he told me that he was an MK Ultra victim. And that they would kill him and wake him back up. Max Spears. They got, Max Spears. They would kill him. Do you remember this? And then he would. they got some process where they'd wake him back up and re-put him into... He claimed to be a mind-controlled soldier. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That really you know set the conspiracy so world ablaze and... Um, you know, we discussed it quite a bit on this program. We talked to um, the German researcher who, uh, you know, was specializing in the Morgellons. Yeah. And, yeah. oh, my God, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Harold von, von, von Kotz. Krauts. Yeah, Krauts, sorry. Kotz, Kotz. Kotz, yeah. I think you're right, Kotz. <laughs> yeah, it's, yep. it's terrible. I forget show. Yeah. Look that show. Oh, my God. Yeah. One, one of our best for sure. And. Um, you, you know, we go so far down the rabbit hole with this stuff that it's it, it's hard to even fathom and it's hard to take seriously. But um, indeed, it is true. There, there seems to be a level of a conspiracy that involves um, some technology that is just uh, mind-blowingly ahead of anything that we can imagine. Um, you know, a world of uh, psychic ability, technology, magic, and, and a lot of lies, too, a lot of deception and lies. Yeah. But notice, too, on that story that his girlfriend or mom, I forget who they were getting the information about what he said, said he said they were into black magic. They were like voodoo people, his handlers. Do you remember that? They said that the, they were practicing some weird satanic magic. And um, so not only did they have the technology to... Con- to kill him and bring him back to life, that was the part that freaked me out the most. He's like, if I end up dead, they're just going to get my body and wake me back up and reprogram me to go do more stuff or whatever they're doing. That's what he told them. Um, it reminds you, Daniel, you know, down in Haiti where they have the uh, zombie drug, scopolamine, where they dry out a puffer fish and they turn it into a powder and the neurotoxins are so powerful, they just blow a handful your direction and you die, but you don't die. Yeah, you know, Todd, you I, you know, after that, sorry to cut you off, but um, after that did happen, the thing with the the black goo, there was a girl that was going on YouTube doing interviews. I think her last name was Adams, and she claimed to have known Max Spears. And she went on and was talking about all the same stuff. She was confirming what he was saying, um, talking about the black goo and things like that. And I tried to get a hold of her. I tried very hard, uh, you know, through Facebook and I think a couple other different ways. And I could not find any trace of her, get any response or anything like that. It was just very weird. So either she's real or she isn't, and it's a psyop. I don't know. Please, I don't know. no, but please believe that any of these un, you know, cases you can't document, stories you can't 
nailed down, they may be just disinformation or psyops. And it could be truth mixed fiction. It could be both. It could yeah, be at the, yeah. At the same time, what we do know is they did a lot of research into mind-controlled drugs and experiments, and um, what they could do. You haven't seen American Satan yet, have you? <laughs> no, I've been so swamped lately. I feel bad because I'm the one that was telling you to watch it. Yeah. If you don't watch that show, you're going to disappoint me soon because, <laughs> man, that's put out by them. Oh, really? That thing right there, that movie was designed to, to, remember where you said you watched that movie where the human caterpillars, and it was so. Oh, God. Uh, human centipede, yeah. That I just watched human the trailer, yeah. <laughs> and it traumatized me for life. Thanks for bringing that back. <laughs> Yeah, um, your description was pretty good of the movie. Um, I, I didn't watch the movie, of course not, but I seen the trailer too and thought, God damn, this, uh, movies have really reached the bottom of the barrel here in their depravity. But um, on a, on that movie, American Satan, it's been out a few weeks now. I won't give any of the, the thing away, but but they got Rowdy McDowell or Malcolm McDowell in there, who's a classic actor who plays the devil. And you never quite know in the movie whether he's real or not. But he comes in and out of the movie talking to these kids that want to be famous. And and right out the get-go at the beginning, he tells these kids, if you want to be famous, you've got to do a human sacrifice. And none of them want to do it, of course, Daniel, because they're just good all-American kids, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great movie. Please get the goddamn movie already. <laughs> I might just um, <laughs> buy it. I might just buy it. That's how much I want to see it. I'll just order it. There you go. I'm gonna, I've, I watched it twice because we rented it online where you could watch it 24 hours, you know, twice if you wanted. And I thought, fuck, I'd want to own that movie because, man, it took me two, two watch, two viewings to catch all the Illuminati symbolism and all the, the message that they're kind of putting out in that movie. They didn't release that movie, Daniel, in the theaters when they said they were gonna because they advertised October 31st or right before Halloween as the date of its release. And the Vegas shooting took place right before that. And I think the movie was too too much involved with guns and killing people because that's what the movie's about, to protect yourself against people trying to kill you. And, um, man, that's why that movie wasn't released, because it was too controversial during the, after the Vegas shooting. But, I don't mean to go on, Daniel, it's just an incredible show, so. Yeah, I'm yeah, definitely going to. A little bit to it. Is there any other news story, anything else? Would you yeah, yeah. Tangent for two more? Yeah, absolutely, I was about to get into it. We do have one more news story today, it comes from mirror.co.uk, and it says, Humongous wild boar named Pigzilla caught rummaging through bins just a few feet from oh. primary school. And I'm looking at this picture right now, Todd, and this is one of the biggest creatures in general that I've ever seen. This thing's got a head like a Mack truck and big-ass shoulders, oh. and he's just he's the I've size of that. one of these big garbage bins. I've never seen a pig so damn big. Oh, my God. Go look up Pigzilla. I think you probably just typed that in. It'll bring you to that story. Boy, they got a picture of this thing, and 
over there, Daniel, the jungle's so thick in certain parts that any sized animal could live in there. And they're real wild boars. Boars exist all over the place. You know, they're they're stubborn animals. <laughs> they're yeah. like mad pigs. <laughs> and, and you really, you have to be careful because these things are no joke. They're not like normal pigs. They're very aggressive, and they'll just charge yeah. out of the bushes unexpectedly. And even people that have hunted them and you know specialize in hunting them, um, a lot of times they get hurt. Like one of the characters on that popular show, Game of Thrones, um, the old king, Robert Baratheon, he actually suffered a wound when he was out wild boar hunting that caused his death and kind of set off the whole story of Game of Thrones. Um, so that's something that comes from, you know, mythology and actual history. Uh, these things are incredibly dangerous, incredibly aggressive. And there's even a picture of a guy in this article. Um, this guy, he, I think he's from England, who, which now has a small wild boar population. And one rushed out of the bushes and actually bit the tip of his finger off. Yeah, I've seen that. Just showing you. I mean, he didn't even, ah, oh, God, it's how he got his finger, you know. He didn't even have a chance to get out of the way. It's like a snack for it. That picture of Pigzilla is amazing. It's standing up on a dumpster. It looked, it probably opened the lid, too. <laughs> and it's fucking eight feet tall. Imagine the Muscles. shits. Imagine the shits this thing made. <laughs> probably the size of a basketball. And and he's got little come, babies with it. Well, you come into where they live, I'll bet it stinks to high. I bet you'd like turn around <laughs> like this ain't a good place, Whoa, you know. But that thing is so big that there that thing there's no way you'd win if you come up against that one. <laughs> I mean, no, no, this is a ferocious animal. A, a human cannot possibly expect to punch and kick and defeat an animal that has, you know, that's much bigger and has the teeth and the ferocity and the instincts to kill something. No, no way in hell. Plus, it looked like it was 700 pounds. Uh, yeah, at least. And um, it, it does oh, ra raise some questions. Like, um, you know, here in America, there was a time when, um, you know, back when the settlers first arrived, it wasn't uncommon to see uh, brown bears the size of elephants. There's all these stories yeah. of bears that were two, three times the size of the ones that we see walking around nowadays. Yeah, Kamchatka bears. Are you familiar with that? Uh, no. They ran 80 miles per hour. They were 10 times the size of your average bear today. They were so ferocious that they literally ruled North America, and that's why no one wanted to live in the more mountainous regions, Daniel, for a long, long time, because you couldn't even deal with these things. They were, they could run 80 miles an hour. So they just pick a guy up, you know, sitting by the fire, grab him, fucking run off with him. He'd never even see it. It was too <laughs> easy for, for those bears. Um, North America, they always keep telling us these stories. If you watch the science shows, about the bears, there were those vicious bears, 10,000, and those were like 10,000 years ago. They had saber-toothed tigers, remember, that were 10 times the size of your average tiger. That must have been a shit to see. Have you ever seen a cat chase a mouse? Oh, yeah. Picture, picture a tiger 10 times bigger than the biggest one you've ever seen. And, oh, 
There's also uh, settlers and also Native Americans that claim to have seen woolly mammoths walking around. Um, even so, just so not so long ago as the yeah. cowboy days, there was actual uh, big, big furry woolly mammoths walking around America. Yeah, and um, I love the subject of cryptids. One of the coolest stories I heard recently. Um, have you ever heard of a, a podcast called Are You Scared? Uh, no. It's by a guy named Phil Holmes. And all it is is people that call in with their spooky stories. But sometimes he has a researcher or an author on. Had a guy, I had a show the other day on Lake Monsters where this guy just ran down the list of all these uh, Lake Monsters stories you probably didn't hear. And there was uh, some real interesting ones in, in the United States, like in Michigan or somewhere around these giant lakes, where people reported seeing like a giant snake that was so big it made the ground tremble as it came through out of the thing and went down into the water. And the weirdest part about the story the guy was telling of all these witnesses is this thing lived around whirlpools. Have you ever seen those whirlpools, Daniels, on YouTube? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with those, you know, the the underwater cyclone. Yeah, and they just suck water down in some, some places. They It's like a maybe it's a drainage thing in a lake, you know, where there's a cracks or crevices below caves underwater where the water flows down to and it creates a whirlpool. But they reported these giant snakes that are size of a school bus going down into the hole, coming back out. In other countries like over in uh, Asia, they have catfish that are 15 feet long in their mouth is three feet wide, and they have lots of reports of children being snatched off the shore by these creatures that just suck you in. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Um, there's a place, I believe it's in the Himalayas, um, somewhere in that area, where they, they say that there's a uh, there's a series of waterfalls in this specific area in the mountains, and it's said that that's the area where they actually have caves that lead into that underworld, that um, that inner hollow earth that's full of, uh, potentially full of reptilians and uh, God knows what's down there. But supposedly there's something like Where that. Where is that? Where? Uh, somewhere in Tibet or Nepal or the Himalayas, yeah. somewhere in right, that area, right. yeah. The Nazis sent units, whole military units, searching for the entrances to the underworld. Let me tell you an interesting story, and I, I hope I'm not keeping you, Daniel. You said you were going to do a longer show, so here I am, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I have a book I found in a bookstore a long time ago. It's called The Coming Race. It was written in the 1800s. It's a book that Hitler read, and it's a fictional work, but Hitler believed it. It's written by Lord Bulwin, Bulwer Lytton, an English, an English author, where he talked about the Vril Society, a group, um, 
of, of another species of people that exist underground. And the story sounded so real that Hitler believed it. I found that book in a used bookstore. It was published in the mid-1800s. It's a tiny book, and it's antique. And I have that book about the people that live under the ground. It's just a fictional story, but it's called The Coming Race. And Hitler believed it and sent out troops to try to find the entrance to the caves. Some people believe he found them. Because, you know, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they were looking for all the sacred relics. Yeah. The Spear of Destiny, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, many researchers have said they, they found stuff under the pyramids that they never told people about. Alien technology from long ago. Uh, yeah. Portals are... I, I totally, uh, you know, I totally vibe with that. It's hard to say exactly, um, you know, what's true and what's what's mythological, but you do have to wonder when you see some of this technology out there, when you see, uh, you know, my experience with the UFOs and, and things like that, um, a lot of people believe that there is another race of people or maybe just a separate society of humans that at some point in the past broke off of the normal human civilization and they hoard technology that's much more advanced than our own and they, they might live underground, they might live in space, another dimension. There's even people that say they live on the dark side of the moon. So it's, it's really hard to tell, but I do think that there's probably something there, uh, you know, something to this to these claims that there is an, an offshoot uh, human civilization or, or maybe inhuman or, or related to us in some way that hoards this advanced technology. Your guest earlier made a very powerful statement. He said, the elite, we know about the rituals, you know. That's been broken in the press. They don't worship Donald Duck or Mickey Mouse. They do worship these things. Would the most powerful, smartest, richest people on earth be involved in worshiping these things if they weren't there? It's an interesting, very powerful statement. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a very fair point, and I you know I've never looked at it that way before, but there has to be some reason why um, they are worshiping Lucifer. Um, is he a real, actual entity or being? Um, well, you, you have to look at oh. one of the most famous quotes that people like to use. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world is, that he does not exist. And I hate that quote, just to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did. Todd. You know why? You know why? Because it sounds so cheesy. It, it sounds like he... If he if he wasn't real, the first thing he'd want, or if he if he was real, the first thing he'd want to do is convince you he isn't. It, you know how my mind works, Daniel. And I went through periods where I'm I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, I'm a magician. Magicians are taught to hold every. I'll throw a key in for everybody. Magicians are taught to hold every belief system that you can for a moment. Look into it. Hold it. Don't just read it, what other people think or believe. 
believe it yourself for a moment. See what happens to your own mind. Do enough of those, Daniel, and you start to realize the power of belief systems. Magicians have taught that trick. Crowley encouraged... Here's what Crowley said. Crowley said, hold more than one view. Hold both views. The, the opposite and the, you know, both polar opposites of a view. Try that for a while. Crowley went into different experiments where he, you've heard of the ego, Daniel. Yeah. Some people call the ego a separate, like inside of us, there's a separate part of us called the ego. It's a, it's a, it's a psychological um, sort of de- description of that part of us that really wants just everything to happen for us and it's all about me, right? That's the ego, we're told. Crowley, he tried to get rid of the ego. He did, he did experiments. You know what he did? Every time he said the word I, he would cut himself with a razor blade on his thumb or his arm to try to stop saying the word I, guess what happened at the end of his experiment? What's that? He ended up severely cut up and wounded and hurt. And, ah, yeah, no. <laughs> and then he realized how powerful the ego was to try not to say the word I. Crowley went to Tibet. He climbed the Himalayan mountains in the early 1900s. Do you know how many people climbed the Himalayan mountains in the early 1900s, Daniel? A very small amount of people. Yeah. When he yeah. was over in... That was one of the he things was he was in, into, was the mountain climbing, for sure. You hear a lot about that. Yeah. Yeah, he actually went on a, went on a mountain climbing trek where about eight people died, and the people that were with him claimed that he was probably responsible for him dying. Have you seen those movies where they're hanging by ropes and they're like, help me up. (laughs) (laughs) They had an avalanche and they got in trouble and Crowley said, screw those guys or something. (laughs) And left them hanging in the end. (laughs) I I think what it was is there probably wasn't a whole lot that Crowley could do. What can you do when people are lost in a blizzard on a mountain? You kind of just have to worry about yourself. And, um, you know, it's kind of used to point out how, um, you know, in one ways, in some ways, he Crowley had all was. this, yeah, how how much power he had and how he was able to influence things. Yet at the same time, he could not even muster up the courage or ability to to save some people that were probably his friends. It you know shows that while he he did have this great power, he was also very weak and feeble in some ways too. The British tabloids were publishing stories about Crowley calling him the most evil man in the world. Did you know that? There's newspapers with his face and 666 above it. Yeah, Back in yeah, the English tabloids. So they were painting him as the Antichrist. And he took that, he took that label too, kind of. Yep, I'm fucking the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah. He used it, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the and- are like, whoa, he's totally... And, you know, the the thing about that, Todd, is I've often asked myself, you know, reading some of these stories of Crowley and the 
the, the great works that he was a part of. And a part of me wonders if there was some truth to that. Perhaps he really was the beast or, or some kind of figure that was here to help bring about um, some sort of a new age. And that's exactly what he claimed to be doing. That's what he claimed to be doing. Who's to say that Crowley's greatest trick was, wasn't just that he was exactly what he said he was. Yeah, the prophet for the new the new aeon, the new religion that was going to take over the world oh. in about a hundred years. And, and all of he it wrote makes the book so of much the law sense. in 1906, and he claimed that by the early by 2000 he never he never lived to see it. But he said that the god of war was coming, Horus, and that was who was going to run the world in about 2000. The god of war. Well, it does so, seem that the military industrial has taken over quite a bit. Yeah, and and Daniel, I got to keep going back and reminding you, he's a military intelligence operative. If he's not directly linked with the highest people, he's an agent of theirs. That doesn't mean what he's doing phony. It probably means that what he's doing, they can use to. They can use that for their advantage, the, tel- the intelligence agencies of the time. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, for sure. There's definitely something there as well. It seems that anybody that's involved in the highest levels of uh, secret societies and the world of ritual magic, it seems to tie right in with that uh, black shadow government that we hear about, the uh, the highest level of intelligence uh, and the uh, black ops. They, they seem to go hand in hand, and it's no surprise to me that somebody uh, w- with his uh, reputation and his influence uh, would be involved in something like that. And then you have to take in consideration his protege, Jack Parsons, who was, uh, you know, who had a tremendous amount of influence in our space program and, and rocket programs. He was, uh, what was his name? The uh, rocket something or another. I forget what his name. L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, yeah, there's L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard, Hubbard as well. And he he was right in there. And uh, you know those three guys and, and other people around them, they, they shaped so much of our world and so much of our society. Do you know what year they did the Babylon working, the ritual? Uh, uh, no, in I don't California? Not. Or it wasn't in California. I think they did it some other location. But they did the moon child ritual. They were trying to bring forth a moon child. And Crowley said, those guys are nuts. <laughs> so if Crowley's, I know, he found out because Crowley wasn't dead by that time. And they said, Dad, what, do you, what do you think about Jack Parsons and, and L. Ron Hubbard doing the Babylon ritual? And yeah, him and uh, him and this woman, <laughs> uh, Jack Parsons and this woman, Major Cameron, um, they were doing all kinds of occult experiments and all kinds of rituals and some very deep stuff that obviously Crowley was even shocked by. And the, uh, the report, like, holy shit. Yeah, and you know what I find specifically interesting about this particular subject is the, the story goes while Jack Parsons and Cameron Majory were, or Majory Cameron, sorry, were involved in this stuff, they were seeing UFOs like left and right just flying mm-hmm. by the house. And All what, over the area. Yeah, what were they? Like the portal was opening. Yeah, they're or, attracting the attention of something or opening a portal or who knows what's going on here. The, it, we're entering a world that is just crazy. Well, the best author, thank God I found him back when I did, 
on all this was John Keel, the, the author of the Mothman Prophecies. And John Keel is the original source for that Crowley story that most people, or the, the L. Ron Hubbard, Jack Parsons story. In John Keel's book, The Haunted Planet, Daniel, which I highly recommend, there's only a tiny snippet about Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard doing the Babylon ritual and Aleister Crowley going, whoa, those guys are crazy. Because <laughs> you don't want to you know, bring that moon child in. But um, the funny thing about Crowley, let me, let me just... <laughs> If I have the time. All right, Todd, we're, we are kind of winding down. I got I to gotta yeah. piss like a racehorse, so I'm, I'm going to need to take another break in, in like a boat. few minutes. Yeah, I've had about six beers now. I got off early today. But go ahead and uh, cap it off and, and say whatever you have to say. Yeah, to try to keep it quick because I really got to go. I'll keep it real quick because me too. Um, the, the, uh, Crowley knew all about drugs. He died a heroin addict. He used everything. One of his most um, famous books is called Diary of a Drug Fiend, where he describes going through drugs and what they did to him, his dependence on them, and how he was able to deal with life being an addict. And I don't know if you know this, but you know the um, Alcoholics Anonymous Bible? Uh Uh-huh. Do you know that? Book. I've never read it, never been an alcoholic, so I wouldn't know. It's what alcoholics use when they go to those everywhere across the United States to deal with their alcohol problem. They took that straight from Crowley's Diary of a Drug Fiend, where he told the fact that you had to lean on a higher source to get over addiction. And it didn't matter what you called it. If you called it Jesus, God, uh, Holy Spirit, whatever... You had to have something higher than you to get over the dr- a drug addiction. So he knew drugs inside and out. Another reason why he would be of extreme value to them. And so I will, I'll let you go, Daniel, um, because I gotta piss like a racehorse too. I'm on my sixth Budweiser. Oh yeah. Oh, Friday damn. night. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Todd, we, yeah, we just went an hour and 12 minutes with you. So definitely a great oh, little segment there. Right on. Hopefully I contributed something to it. I, I think so. But um, uh, we will talk to right you on, again buddy. next time. Todd the Bod, thank you so much for calling in. Sounds good. Peace, my man. Uh, peace. Bye. Okay, there you have it. That was Todd. I uh, hate to rush him off the line, but I really got a wee. I'm going to play some music, unusual amount of breaks on this episode, but I'm going to play some music and I'm going to come back for the final stretch. Let's see if we can do five hours this time. Okay, and you guys don't need to hear that whole song because I'm sure you've heard it a million times before. Welcome back, everybody, for the last stretch of End of Days Radio. This is your host, Daniel, broadcasting to you all the way from the broken ruins of Babylon. Ha, 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 ha. 
I don't know what I'm doing. I do apologize. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting a little bit batty. Um, you know, one thing just did occur to me a moment ago. I realized that I am completely sober. As many of you guys know out there, I'm a huge stoner slash pothead slash hippie, and I love to partake in the, the beautiful uh, cannabis plant. But today I totally forgot to even get stoned. I didn't even realize that I wasn't. I'm here on air. Almost every show I tend to be stoned or I tend to get stoned halfway through, but I did not this time. And it's really interesting because sometimes I think of how the show goes when I'm ripped out of my mind and sometimes I'll be making some really good point and I'll completely forget what I was talking about. <laughs> that happens so often. And then I'll try to like sw- switch directions and completely cover it up and uh, you, you know, make the most of it, but that's happened quite a few times, and I feel bad about it because I wonder if I'm kind of, you know, cheating you guys, and if I should just wait until after the show. That might be better. I think uh, caffeine tends to lend towards a more talkative broadcast rather than you know, getting so stoned. I don't even know what the hell's going on. But it's fun though because my brain will make all these connections that it normally wouldn't, and I'll talk about things that I probably normally wouldn't. I tend to have a more abstract way of thinking. Uh, I should probably read some fan mail. <coughs> oh, God. Uh, this first letter is from Thomas. Thomas, I probably shouldn't say his last name. He says, hi, Daniel. Will you ever do another Magic Month? Question mark. I learned so much. You present your guests in a fun way, in a fun way that isn't boring like most. Thank you, Thomas. I do agree. I think that I, um... I wouldn't say that I have the art of the interview mastered, but I have studied great interviewers, and I try to do the best that I can. And I know there's other people out there that have um, emulated my style. They they copy the show. This show's always been copied left and right. And as I've said before, there was a time, a point in time that I came to where I stopped caring because. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing to have more people talking about these subjects, to be spreading the truth. There aren't enough soldiers in this battle. There's not enough people fighting on our side. So by all means, if you want to have a podcast of your own or some sort of show or YouTube videos or any way, uh, you know, a written newsletter, any way at all that you can reach people out there and spread this truth, I'm all for you. I'm all for it. I'm all for you. Uh, you know, I'll do everything in my power to help you get started and, and get you rolling. If you want to come on this show and plug or anything like that, I'm totally down with that. I think the more people out there that we have spreading this information, well, the less likely that they're going to come and kill me specifically. So I'm all for it. <laughs> There's always some sort of sneaky agenda behind the nice things that I do. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do have another letter. This one comes from Mel. Uh, not so positive. This one's on the opposite end of the spectrum, for sure. He says, hello, end of days. Your show used to be so good. You would discuss many great real conspiracy topics with many great guests. Now there's too much gay magic shit. Please, no more magic or I will stick a magic wand up your ass. Uh, that's from Mel. Okay, so first of all, Mel, to respond to that, I have to question why you are using the word gay as a put-down. I thought we were past that as a society. You seem to be about 10 years behind on that. 
and also you say no too much gay magic shit, then you go on to say that you want to stick a magic wand up my ass. Um, I, I can't help but feel that there's a, a very underlying homo urge that you are having towards me. So I, I'd like you to stick to, uh, uh, you know, remaining objective and not insert so much sexuality <laughs> into your, into your emails that you send me. Um, you know, in, in regards to what you're actually saying, there are a lot of people out there that prefer if this show stays on ground floor level, if we just cover like, Alex Jones type of conspiracy topics, like it's all, uh, you know, it's all just humans. There's no spiritual level. There's no psychic level. There's no um, alien level to any of this. Uh, there's people out there that uh, they only believe that nuts and bolts things that they can prove with a document trail are real. But the thing is that a lot of incredible things you can prove with the document trial, such as the U.S. military's remote viewing program. There's an example right there. That's something that's very real, that's documented, that's on Wikipedia. So I, I really scratch my head when I hear this stuff about um, you should stick to more serious topics and serious conspiracy topics. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not into that. There are shows, there are podcasts out there, uh, Infowars, it's all that sort of stuff. And that stuff bores the hell out of me. I don't think that stuff's any more true than the really far out stuff, to be quite honest. A lot of that ground floor level conspiracy stuff is highly exaggerated. I mean, come on. Um, you, you guys really think that the Rothschilds and Rockefellers are behind everything? For one thing, they're only um, a couple of the 13 bloodlines that make up the Illuminati. And the other thing is that it's not just them. There's other factions out there, other groups some of which are aliens, some of which are secret societies or even offshoot, offshoot human races, time travelers. The world out there is incredible. It's not my wish to stifle your view of the world. I want to expand it. I want you to know what's out there. I'm not coming at you in a serious political fashion. If you're looking for that, you could probably find it elsewhere. We can talk about serious political stuff. That's fine. We can talk about ground floor level conspiracies. I love to do that. Um, you know, because we can prove those things a lot easier. That's why I like them. But is that the end of it? No. Eventually you get tired of talking about Hillary Clinton and, <laughs> and, and the Rothschilds and that stuff all the time. It, there comes a point where you got to take it to the next level and you got to ask yourself, what are they doing during these rituals? Why are they abducting these children? What is the underlying agenda behind it all? And that's when you start to get into the spiritual level of this all. And if you think that you have it figured out, like perhaps you're a, a Christian and you believe that it's all Satan behind all of this, I can't help but find that that's incredibly short-sighted. There's more to it than that. I'm not saying there isn't some Satan behind it all. I don't really know. But there's more to it than that. There's details that are worth looking into. And there's stuff that's worth learning about this. And... and I don't even know if I should get into this. You, you guys are going to think I'm fucking out of my mind, what I'm about to tell you. It's something that I am planning to do, and it's something that I've talked to some of you privately about to mix reactions, and it's something that I feel needs to be done. As many of you know, one topic that we cover quite a bit is psychic abilities, and this is something that most other shows don't want to go anywhere near. 
but End of Days Radio has always been on the forefront of this type of discussion. And part of the reason is I've had experiences of my own. I know these things are verifiable, provable, and they actually exist. I know that there's capabilities of the human mind that go beyond what we believe possible, that consciousness is very powerful. It's something that Art Bell used to say, you know, the power of consciousness. And really, that's where all the magic comes from, right? Consciousness. And I believe that consciousness is indeed very powerful. And I also believe that there are people out there that have talent in this specific area. And we have had guests on this program that have come on here and talked about working with special, talented children with unique abilities. Um, sometimes they get labeled as hybrid children or just uh, you know, intuitive, special abilities, stuff like that. Uh, but what I would like to do at some point in the future, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I would like to create <coughs> – excuse me, I'm losing my voice finally – I would like to work with you guys out there to create some kind of center or perhaps some kind of school that could help these individuals, these people that are having these experiences, to actually understand them and make sense of them. 